Driving that coach. 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 We're live. And welcome to another edition of Dropping That Culture with JD and AJ. I'm JD. I'm AJ. And like I said, we're back again in the 2020. It's been a hell of a year, very rough year. But uh, one thing I can appreciate is the steadfast, you know, dedication of our fans, in particular, our fans in Michigan. Uh, AJ and I have been uh, looking over the stats in terms of the downloads for our show, and consistently we have very, very, a very, very good fan base in this one. And we really appreciate you guys for listening to us. And my, my suggestion is this. If y'all like us so much, spread the word. Tell your friends. Well, Tell their friends. I'll throw this in okay. there. Uh, you know, we're not going to take sides when it comes to the NCAA, Spartans versus Wolverines. Uh, I've, only, I've only had the good fortune to be in Michigan uh, three times, I guess, at this point. And uh, I'll say – I mean, there's a lot of fun to be had out there. In fact, you know, I mean, you and I have often talked about our, our love for cigars. One of the best cigar joints I've ever been to is out in uh, Birmingham, which is a suburb of Detroit. Uh, and I've mm-hmm. also been to an absolutely gorgeous little town. I mean, you know, the folks got something good up there, so we appreciate the love. And like you said, if you're this, friends, uh, we're going to keep speaking out the way that we've been out for, geez, man, I think we're 30-something episodes right now, 32, 33. Damn, that many? We're consistent. We're almost at 50, dude. I know. Well, I think, uh, if I remember right, October, I think, is when we'll hit our, our 50. A one-year anniversary, yeah. Anniversary. We'll have to do something special for that one. We definitely got to do something special for the one-year anniversary. <laughs> All right, cool. But, yeah, again, thank you guys so much for your, uh, for your uh, dedication to our podcast. We really appreciate it. Um, let's go ahead and get to some of the segments that have made you guys wanted fans. Of us, so let's go with the first one. Seven Degrees of Eddie Murphy, where I can name any major American film star and connect them to the great Eddie Murphy within seven films. Now, let's go ahead and do the intro uh, because I know AJ loves it so much. Because I, I saw him as I was talking, I was like, Is he gonna do it? You, you get closer, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's do it. Okay, All right, here we go. <clears throat> <laughs> All right, so what you got for me this week, man? Well, I'm going to put it on point because we're going to get into this one a little later. Michael J. Fox. Okay, this one right there. All right, so let's go. What around? Ah, I'll go this route. Uh, Michael J. Fox was in. I just watched, yeah, I just watched this movie the other night. Um, the Secret of My Success with Helen Slater. Helen Slater was in Ruthless People with Judge Reinhold. Judge Reinhold was in Beverly Hills Cop with Eddie Murphy. Very nice. All right. <laughs> Difficulty. Francis McDormand. Not that difficult. Okay. All right. So Francis McDormand was in, ah, yeah. Francis McDormand was in Dark Man. With uh, Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson was in. Oh, yeah, I'll go this route. Uh, uh, was with Liam Neeson in. Uh, oh, sorry. Liam Neeson was in the Batman, Retur- Batman Begins 
with Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman was a nurse bedded with Chris Rock. Chris Rock was in uh, Boomerang with Eddie Murphy. All right, and then the most difficult one for today, Mr. Aaron Paul. Say it again. Aaron Paul. Aaron Paul? Mm -hmm. I told you I was going to increase in difficulty. He's done movies? Yeah, he did, uh, he did El Camino, which is a Netflix movie, and then he also did, um, shoot, what was it? It was, uh, there was a movie he did right before that. Where he, was, he was basically a drone operator. I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head. Um, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but he's been in two. Okay, you know what? I'm going to admit, uh, I got to look this one up. I don't know any Aaron Paul movies. All right, so, okay, that's, okay, that's another one we can put in the, uh, yeah, no one can put in a win column for AJ. There we go. Well, I mean, look, here's the thing. The man made his millions off of an amazing performance run on Breaking Bad. Nobody can dispute that. Killer. Yeah. But pretty solid on the other side. El Camino's, I mean, it's, if I remember right, it's, uh, it's in the same universe, so it kind of still goes away. It's like an MOW. Uh, but this other one, Rone one, uh, that was definitely in theaters. Okay. I'm blanking. It's not... Um, Oh God, I'm blanking. I can't remember. Yeah, I'm look, I'm looking up Aaron Paul right now because, like I said, all I know is Breaking Bad. That's literally all I know of Aaron Paul. <coughs> um, a lot of folks. All right. Hmm. I said that's where a lot of folks know him from. It's all right. Thank yeah. you for a couple of movies though, so I can uh, I can call a win on here. Mm. Not have it be a Mandy Moore. Let's get somewhere with it. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Uh, let's see. You know you're gonna learn that because at some point. Ah, okay, got it, got it. Okay, cool. All right, this should be easy. All right, Aaron Paul was in Central Intelligence with Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart was in Me David. Oh, that's right. I forgot he was in Central Intelligence. I totally. So did I. He had just that little yeah. I've only seen it the one time, and I already told you the story why I had the fucking uh, melted brownie and I had a panic attack. Yeah, that, that, uh, so I don't remember much. Of social intelligence other than that. You should go back and give it another try. It wasn't bad. I don't know. My <laughs> <laughs> George with some bad memories though, because that was okay, for folks for those of you, <laughs> those folks who don't know, I may have told the story on the on the on okay. podcast once. But uh a couple <laughs> years back I got a a brownie of the uh, edible variety in terms of edibles, I mean edibles with cannabis in it. Uh the thing melted in my car. So I did not know how much was how much. So I, like an idiot, I ate the whole thing. And I went to go see Central Intelligence with The Rock and Kevin Hart. And I started tripping out halfway into the movie. And all I remember is stumbling out of the theater and then walking around Burbank, right right by the AMC. I walked around that block where this is like a parking structure right next to it. I walked around that fucking parking structure like for like an hour. Just walking, because <laughs> I was like trying to. I was trying to sober myself. I was like, you know, I gotta do some physical activity. Maybe this will get this out of my system. And I went up and down that damn parking structure, like up the stairs and all that shit, several times. And then finally, I was actually I parked up, up, up top, and I got in my car. I was about to get it, but then I still fucked up. I was like, no, I can't leave. I can't leave. I can't, stay. I can't leave. But I can't stay. I can't leave. But what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? And I actually worked myself into a panic attack. And fucking. <laughs> I actually had to call the ambulance to come get me. They did. 
and I spent the night in a Burbank hospital. Well, just a couple of hours in a Burbank hospital being uh, intubated. No, not intubated. I mean, I had an uh, IV. Yeah, so yeah. it wasn't that serious, but I wasn't intubated. But like, I had an IV in me for about a good hour. And finally, I was lucid enough to I can actually get back to my car. And I had enough wherewithal to be able to drive to a friend's house who happened to live in North Hollywood. So I stayed with her for the night <laughs> and uh, watched <laughs> Watched uh, Parks and Rec and tried to sober the fuck up. I still felt I still felt a little bit that next morning, but I was able to drive back to Long Beach when I stayed Long Beach. So <laughs> yeah, it's like that's my that's my memory of Central Intelligence. Everybody has that one like liquor or whatever it is. Like you know, for some people it's like tequila, and you're like, oh my god, I had this one horrible night on tequila. So it's like you can't even just the smell of it just comes back. You're like, nope, 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 nope. Apparently, Central Intelligence is your tequila. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it triggers a fucking cannabis-lidden fucking <laughs> panic attack that I had, so it's not really a good memory. <laughs> okay, so uh, so we got Aaron Paul. So we got our three choices were Michael J. Fox. Uh, what was the shit? Uh, what was the other one? Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, and uh, Aaron Paul. All right, so we got all those three. Cool. All right, so let's go ahead and hit the outro on this thing. Eh, 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 eh. Cool. Love what, it. What was this? What was this shit? I'm dancing. <laughs> okay, cool. All right, Look, so let's go ahead and get into it. Whoa, 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 what's up? I said my wife will vouch for me. I'm a drummer, not a dancer. So just don't judge too much. Oh yeah, she. Uh, I remember uh, I posted a thing about uh, me line dancing, and she's like, "Please teach him." <laughs> so I already know. <laughs> Plus, I was at your wedding. I saw you guys dance. Yeah, <laughs> she's good. I'm. I'm just trying not to step on either of her. Well, either her or my own feet. So. Yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> but I, 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 I kind of cheered you all a little bit. Like, we, we didn't say Folks have looked enough at our Facebook page. They probably saw the photo of you cheering me on when we had that moment heads together. No pain. No pain. No pain. Yeah, that was, that was before. That was before. Just, that was just for the ceremony. But then I didn't know the extent of the dance thing. I should have did it again right before the dance. You didn't know how bad it was gonna get. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> but it ended up cool. We ended up having a good night anyway. So you, did. you had a better night than me. But yeah, that's bad. So hey, I brought, I brought cigars. There was there was booze flowing. Like you know, it was decent food. Yeah, that's cool. But you still got your chick. So that's bad. I definitely. There you I, go. That's for sure. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's get to our next segment. Uh, WWBS. What would Busey say? Why well, improvise a rant as the great Gary Busey? Now, what you got for me this week? Well, this week's question is for first dates. Oh, oh, actually, 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 before before we uh before we do that, uh, you know what I rewatched uh the other night, Drop Zone. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, Wesley Snipes and Gary Busey. Gary's the bad guy. Let's go on back a little bit. <laughs> yeah, the fucking, the fucking skydiving movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Gary Busey's all messing and chewed up to one dude's finger. Yeah. <laughs> you got nine more. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so, all right, so what do we got for Gary tonight? Okay, so this week's question is, for first dates, what does Busey prefer? Dinner and a show or hot dog and shooting at cans down by the river? 
first dates. Well, first date is, uh, how's it, what, what do they say? You only get one time to make a first impression. But me? No, I don't do the usual bullshit where you go out and take her to dinner or maybe go to a movie or some crap like that. No, no. no I, I want to give her an experience. Yeah. So what we're going to do, yeah, yeah, uh, hot dogs and shooting cans by the river is cool, but you ever try peyote? Yeah, yeah, peyote, going out to the desert, we have a sense of fever dream. Oh, yeah, that's the way to go for a first date. Let her experience her past lives. You know, we can meld together. We can end up having sex like those werewolves and the howling. Turn into animals, man. Turn into animals. We just make love for hours and hours on end until we're both hoarse and dry from exhaustion. Then the next day, we'll probably go to like a Waffle House or some shit like that. You know, probably have like a, a nice, uh, a nice steak or something, something really hot or something really good. You know, get some protein back in us, and you know, probably go out and do the shooting cans and all the other bullshit again. But definitely peyote in the desert. That's the way to go for a first date, man. I want to give her an experience she's never experienced before. Peyote in the desert. Tiger blood. We're going to have sex until we're horse. <laughs> and drive from exhaustion. <laughs> Don't forget that part. I just thought of it because you were talking about Parks and Rec. <laughs> Back together with Tammy, and they're mm-hmm. talking about how they've got a twenty-pound ba- bag of peanuts and a case of Gatorade for energy. For energy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's disgusting. It's what you just said. It's so gross. <laughs> you, you, you see the one with uh, Jam got with Tammy, and they're trying to like uh, kind of deprogram Jam from being caught up in Tammy shit. I like the one where he's like, uh, "Look, man, you, like, you always gotta check the attic." I remember Tammy stayed in my attic for like a week and she lived off of like rats and rainwater. <laughs> He's trying to give him a gold bar to help him break up with her. Uh, you, you just keep a gold bar on your disc? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh yeah, uh, he kept spraying her perfume in his face. It was the name, oh, yeah, the name of the perfume was Gert. <laughs> I know that was another uh, another. What, what was it, what was the guy's name? The, the perfumer. Dennis Feinstein. Feinstein. That's right. Yeah. The asshole. <laughs> Complete asshole. <laughs> oh man. Oh man. That's good stuff. All right. So this next segment has actually been kind of on a hiatus for the last few weeks, mainly because of the fact that some of the subject matter we've been doing is kind of long. So I don't want to like drag things down. I just want to keep things moving. But we're bringing it back. Uh, because of the fact I was actually uh, wrote an article on this particular person uh, a couple months ago, and I'm getting a lot of feedback because it's just been released recently. So let's bring back Roger Reed's rap, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. Roger. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Roger Moore, and I used to be James Bond. This is not so much the commentaries. Of a one-sided conversation, as I cannot talk to you and you cannot talk to me. But I suggest you sit back as I read your next up from a 
wonderful piece of American poetry from the great artist Jay-Z. And it is entitled 99 Problems. Stanza one. <clears throat> one second. Rogers lost his internet connection on his phone. There we are. All right. If you're having girl problems, I feel bad for you, son. I got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. I got the rat patrol and the gat patrol. Foes who want to make sure my coffin's closed. Rat critics say that he's money, cash, hoes. I'm from the hood, stupid. What type of facts are those? If you grew up with holes in your zapatas, you'd celebrate the minute. I will you celebrate the minute you was having dough. I'm like, fuck critics. You can kiss my whole asshole. If you don't mind my lyrics, you can press fast forward. I got beef with radio that I don't play, but they don't play their show. Uh, they don't play my hisses such confusing. Well, I don't give a shit, so rap mags try to kiss my black ass. So advertisers give them more cash for ads, fuckers. I don't know what you take me as or understand the intelligence Jay-Z has. <clears throat> I'm from rags to riches, niggas ain't dumb. I got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. Hit me. 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. If you're having girl problems, I feel bad for you, son. I got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. This has been Roger Moore, and I am drunk as shit today. How's that? I'm so glad Roger's back. <laughs> <laughs> I just like that close out, though. Was, I'm Roger Moore, and I'm drunk as shit today. <laughs> That's definitely his new outro. <laughs> uh, Gary, Roger Moore. Uh, I'm, uh, Gary Busey's Tiger Blood. Eddie Murphy's <laughs> that shit. And Roger Moore is I'm Roger Moore, and I'm drunk as shit. <laughs> oh, man, I love that shit. Now let's go ahead and get to another little bit of uh, another segment that we like on the show. Dropping that news. Dropping that news. Okay, so first and foremost, we got to go ahead and get to the big one, at least in my eye. Uh, Mark Calloway, who was known as The Undertaker for the WWE, has recently announced his retirement this past Sunday on a documentary uh, that's entitled The Last Ride. Now, um, as many of you know, The Undertaker has been a staple of WWE for basically 30 years. I'm almost exactly 30 years because he debuted on the Survivor Series 1990. That's around like the October, November timeframe. And his last match was this past April on the WWE Network in a boneyard match with uh, AJ Styles. Now, The Undertaker, for many people, myself included, you know, that's just one of those essential wrestling characters, man. He's been around basically my entire life. Like, I was introduced to the character when I was five years old, and I'm 35 now, and the character's just been a part, consistent part of WWE ever since 
Of course, in later years, he hasn't been as frequent as he used to be because of the fact he's older, you know, can't well, really just be out there like that anymore. But, yeah. I was going to say, the other thing you got to mind, too, with him and how important he is, um, he's one of those characters that really transcends uh, the, the genre in a really remarkable way. I mean, you talk to anyone, anyone who, who grew up in America in the 80s and 90s, regardless of whether or not they're wrestling fans. There's two characters, bar none, everybody knows. Hulk Hogan, Hulkamania, that'll thing, and then Undertaker. Yeah, Undertaker. Undertaker's the one who really had the staying power. He has been through it all. He stuck out. He has been pushing and pushing and pushing. And it's just been, been an insane, because we had talked about it. If you haven't listened to it, go back to the part series, Monday Night Wars. Mm-hmm. It was an amazing arc to his career, kind of how he's progressed and shifted and changed. And I know you're going to get into more of that, but it's just one of those things that needs to be said is that it's such big news that even people who aren't into WWE are going to hear this. And if they haven't been paying attention, they're going to go, wow, I didn't realize he was still wrestling. That's yeah. That's, that's the more common. That's, yeah. That's the more common comment. Like, he's still wrestling? Yeah. Shit. Like, like, I remember him when I was a kid. And these would be like, these are grown people. You know what I'm saying? Like, like The Undertaker has just been one of those just like one essential characters with him. Like, he's just been through it all. He's been through the Hogan years. Through the Bret Hart years, through the Stone Cold Steve Austin years, through the John Cena years recently, and now he's in the age of Roman Reigns and all these other people out there. He's just stuck with it the entire time. Now, he might have taken breaks here and there due to injury or like tr- repackaging his character, but consistent. You know what I'm saying? And of course, the most famous legacy he left behind the streak at WrestleMania. It went 21 years straight undefeated at WrestleMania up until. WrestleMania 30 in New Orleans where he was beaten, what decision was made to beat him and he was beaten by Brock Lesnar. So, and now, and I, I remember watching that. I had what I call the three oh shit uh, reaction to it because it's like, uh, surprise, oh shit, realization, oh shit, and then real realization, like, oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, and, and I, was, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, except for Vince, He's the longest, and, and you can only kind of sort of give Vince because he came in and out of it, a little bit of wrestling himself. Except for Vince, I think he's the longest lasting character. No, he is the longest lasting character because Vince didn't really turn into Mr. McMahon up until like 97. But he, Vince was always there as an announcer, but he, as a character, he wasn't there until 97. He's even still in and out. He's, not, he's never branded himself. He's always kept that CEO thing, and there was just like the, the overbearing CEO who's just forcing his way into it because he thinks he's better than everyone. Whereas yeah, Vince, yeah. wrestlers, it's just mm-hmm. he's in a league. Uh, like Vince and Taker in the last re- last few years have been that kind of like in case of emergency breaking glass break break open glass character. Like mm-hmm. when ratings get low, they usually bring back either Vince or Taker or some other wrestler. Like they bring like recently they've been doing it with Stone Cold Steve Austin. They're bringing him back a lot. Or Shawn Michaels every once in a while. Well, Shawn Michaels and all of them, they actually trainers at the facility they have NXT now. So you see them very regularly. But um Taker is just like one of the characters. Also he's one of the last K Fabe guys. And for those of you not familiar with the term K Fabe comes from the carnival days. It's basically just protecting the wrestling business. Like, you know, everybody thinks the wrestling business is real. They don't think it's real. You know what I'm saying? We're all characters. We hate each other for real. This is what we do to resolve those issues. And that's how you protected it. Taker was one of the last few people to incorporate that into his persona. Because, like, in terms of, like, interviews, especially with the wake of social media and all this shit, 
everybody's been clamoring their ass off for Undertaker to come out and do it again. It's like every podcast, every major TV show, like I would love for Undertaker to do an interview with us, but he has to protect the character. But now, actually, in the last, ever since uh, this past November uh, on the uh, WWE Network, he did an interview as himself on Stone Cold Steve Austin's podcast, The Broken Skull Sessions. And it got, like, I think you say that it was the highest rated thing they've ever done on the WWE Network. Because, in fact, it's the first time a lot of people have seen Mark Calloway, not The Undertaker. And yeah. they always had, like, I wonder, because they always see all these other people talking about their matches and, you know, how they interact with other superstars. They never see that from The Undertaker. Undertaker very rarely shows that side. Now that he has, I've been looking on, like, YouTube for, like, the last few months. He's everywhere now. Like, I've seen, he's on, like, a Sam Roberts podcast. He's on, like, a couple Busted Open on uh, Sirius Radio. He's, in, he's on a bunch of ESPN. Uh, I, think he just did, I think he just did, like, uh, Entertainment Tonight or one of those shits. Yeah. You got to say, too, it's, it's actually one of the, the most brilliant strategies you're going to find because a lot of these guys, you know, they, they rush out to go and try to cash in on it so soon, and they end up essentially kind of blowing through their value. And, you know, it, it does two things the way that he ran it. One, he maintained enough of a sense of, of for lack of a better word, uh, I'd say, like, history to where you didn't – you know, he allowed that suspension of disbelief to permeate throughout everything. For all the, all the uh, fans, right? Because you never, like, you talk about Dwayne Johnson, right? And again, nothing against Dwayne. Like, I mean, this isn't a, a, a hit on him, so let's make sure we're clear there, because I freaking love Dwayne Johnson. But when he was doing the wrestling, and as he started making this transition to being a Hollywood superstar, you know, he, he was breaking that character. And he was going out, you're getting to know Dwayne Johnson. That's one of the reasons why people like him, because you've got to put some on. But as Undertaker managed to consistently and always hold himself out as, this is my character. This is who I am. And he, he kept that so close. It's now made it to where now that he's ready to retire, because physically, because we talk about this all the time, these are professional stunt performers that get hurt and do crazy stuff to entertain us all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, physically, he can't handle the other stuff. But because he was careful and smart about it, he's going to be able to cash in on a way that, you know, a, a John Cena might not be the best example, but somebody like that is not going to be able to because he doesn't have this built up demand behind him. I mean, there's this novel thing about who the Undertaker is and this whole point now that hopefully for him it'll be a great retirement program because, I mean, like I said, you know, there's not a lot these guys can do when they're done there. I mean, unless they get a job in the position. But just speaking on that, Taker is one of those people where if he wanted to, he would have had a job for life. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he will come back uh, in terms of, like, some backstage capacity because you could tell because he's actually – it's gone down to their performance center a couple times and taught, like been a guest, like teacher or whatever. So I'm pretty sure he'll probably like go back down, maybe work with the big guys, uh, you know, because they have a lot of big guys down there that like still need training, need to. Well, and ooh, he's, he's, too, yeah. he's got that, you know, Undertaker's, it's a job as much as it's anything else. Mm-hmm. It's a great opportunity. They want to play with it for a story arc with him essentially training the new Undertaker. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, but, 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 but Realistically, there's not gonna be another Undertaker. Well, it wouldn't. But you know what I'm saying it's it's almost like um it's almost like what happened at the end of the Dark Knight series. Right. So you have that opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Be another yeah. but you kind of set up for what was the character or something? Was it Nighthawk? Well, essentially Nighthawk, but Robin. Right, but okay, so there's there's an opportunity here. They can because I mean, again, it's WWE. They, they use you write your own script. You don't have a comic book you gotta follow. 
there's an opportunity where he could he could essentially get an apprentice um, or something. And if they wanted to, they could roll with something like that. Even though he was like this lone guy, mm-hmm. finding whoever that next lone person is to take over. Because he was he was always that enforcer, right? Like when stuff got too bad, yeah. he was the one they'd bring in to clean it up. So it's just an interesting thought. I mean, we'll have to see how they go with it. I know they haven't set it up yet. Right. Uh, like you're talking about in terms of future experience and involvement, that's, that's definitely still there. And again, that's stuff he can do without having to go and put his body on the line anymore. Because I'm sure, I mean, I haven't heard enough of him, but I'm sure his joints are just screwed and his back's probably all kinds of screwed. Actually, I was going to get into that, the whole documentary. It was a five-part documentary shot over like three or four years. Um, well, Undertaker was like kind of showing what his life is in recent years. Like, yeah, he's had all kinds of issues with his hip, his back. He actually has a hip replacement on the show uh, to show how much yeah, he's beaten up. And, and his wife is sitting there talking about, you know, how often he, he goes to the hospital and how how long it takes for him to get ready and all sorts of stuff. And then, like I said, the whole thing is a trans is a pretty much a uh, transition to the point where he finally sits down and tells the people uh like uh you know how he's a i think it's the thing the line he said was uh you know how usually you see the cowboy in a movie and he rides off into the sunset whatever mm-hmm. this time the cowboy rides off for real mm-hmm. and he, he announced it that he announced his retirement that way he said he has no desire to get back in the ring again at all so he's done what he has to do even everybody in the everybody who all uh, tr- contributed to the interview, to the uh, segments and shit, and interviews. They're like, he said his legacy years ago. We don't really need. He didn't really need to do this shit. For that. He just did it because he wanted to. But we are like, said, we, he, like his legacy is set, bro. There's no doubt about that. Well, look, I but, mean, let's go ahead. Yeah. Okay, on behalf of myself, and, and I'm sure on, on your behalf of the show, we can say absolutely. We have nothing but admiration and thanks for everything he did to entertain the hell out of us for, for the last 30 years. I mean, in the world of, of professional wrestling, and again, it's taking nothing away from Dwayne, it's taking nothing away from, from Hulk Hogan, some of these other greats. Man is without peer, I think. Yeah. Uh, actually, he's in my top five pro wrestlers of all time and has been for the last few years. Uh, my top five is as follows. Number one, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Number two, Breath the Hitman Hart. Number three, The Nature Boy, Ric Flair. Number four, Macho Man, Randy Savage. And number five, The Undertaker. That's my top five. So, um, and like I said, like, well, just from myself and AJ and from, of course, all the fans around the world, thank you, Taker. Thank, thank you. you for all the years of, of uh, you know, tributing to our childhood. Thank you for all the bumps and all the bruises that you took to entertain millions and millions of people around the world. You deserve your retirement. You deserve your rest. Thank you, sir. Yes, yes. Yes, sir. All right, let's go on to the next. Actually, the last, the next two bits I have are both Batman-related. First off, we have to uh, send our condolences to the family of Joel Schumacher. Uh, he passed away uh, this past week at the age of 80. Um, Mr. Schumacher has done many films, but, of course, he's best known for his two outings uh, with the Batman franchise after taking over from Tim Burton, uh, Batman Forever, and Batman and Robin. Now, he's known for those mainly because of the fact that there was a bit of notoriety with those movies because of the fact that a lot of fans felt he really diverged greatly from what uh, Tim Burton had established in terms of the films, uh, making it more cartoony, making it more, you know, camp and slapstick in some ways and stuff. And 
Some people loved it. A lot of people didn't. Uh, personally speaking, and I've said to stage A, he doesn't get it. I actually like Batman Forever more than I like Batman Returns. That's just me. It's, it, I know it just has a certain rewatchable quality to it. Not really a fan of the whole adding the nipples to the bat suit and <laughs> all the uh, constant uh, uh, close-ups of the uh, crotch and buttocks regions of both Robin and Batman. Was really feeling that. Um, was feeling the, the bad girl air shot. That was nice. Uh, but um, yeah, like I said, lots, a lot of people like kind of like on the edge in terms of uh, Schumacher's Batman's. Either you like them or you don't. A lot of people are on the edge. I like them. Here's the thing. Well, I, like, I, like, I like Batman forever. Here's the thing. I, I've I, obviously we've talked about this a hundred times. People know what a, what a geek I'm about a lot of stuff. There's a really great series. Uh, that AFI put out a long time ago it was a director series. And so they've interviewed, if I remember, I think it's 50 or 60 top A-list directors. They talked to them about everything that they've done. And Schumacher was one of them. And um, I think probably the best way to, to kind of get at what the problem for, I think a lot of us kind of more traditionalist fans felt about uh, Batman was, was when he was being asked about what he liked about Batman and how he did Batman was he said, quote, uh, and, and I might be, it's not exactly debatable. Basically, he said that the thing that's great about Batman is it's a chance for everyone to show off. And what he meant by that is it's a chance for a costume to show off. It's a chance for props to show off. It's a chance for art department in general to show off. Um, and so I, I think part of what Batman suffered from was there was an overemphasis on, on two things. One, this is, again, the early stages of nearly unlimited budget for cartoon and, and comic book kind of films. So they had as much money to do whatever they wanted to, number one. Uh, number two, they didn't feel tethered to anything in the source material short of who these characters were in terms of their names and kind of general overtones of, okay, so, you know, Batman lives alone and there's Alfred and the Riddler's going to use riddles to kind of mess with him and all of that kind of stuff. But aside from that, they just went wild. And unfortunately, I think for a lot of more purists, that's where the real, um, real criticism lies. And I think it's, I think it's a fair criticism. Uh, you know, and I say all that to say, I mean, he also made one of my all-time favorite films, uh, Half Second Off Air, uh, Falling Down, which if you haven't seen that, uh, it's a great, great, great film. Go find it right now, watch it right now. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to ruin it for anybody, but it is a hell of a guy. Yeah. Now, uh, like I said, I like Batman Forever for certain reasons. I hate Batman and Robin. Um, <laughs> most people That's yeah, it, as I said, that's the one scene of the movie I actually liked. Uh, but the rest of it is ridiculous. Now, a lot of people tend to compare Batman and Robin to the 66 Batman film. However, if you remember, the 66 Batman actually had a Batman movie. And I'll be honest with you, it's much better than Batman and Robin. Like, it's campy. Yeah, it's campy as all shit. But I, don't, I think it's just like sort of an earnestness to Adam West and Burt Ward and all these other people that they put into it. It just is much, it's much better watched than Batman and Robin, which is basically just a living, breathing cartoon, which doesn't really translate that well. Well, um, I'll tell you, this is, this is where Forever and Batman and Robin kind of yeah. fell in the cracks, right? I think, because I thought about it a lot. <laughs> somewhere between the comic booky Adam West side of stuff and where we eventually got with Dark Knight. 
right? So like you hear about the uncanny valley when you talk about things like VR, you hit the certain spot where VR is real enough, but not so real that, it does, that it's passable. And so there's something that's really off-putting about it that's kind of hard to put your finger on. And I think that's kind of where they're at. They're stuck somewhere between that darker Burton Batman and what we've got to with Chris Nolan's Batmans and that campy side, cartoony side. I think that's what, at least for me, and that, that might be a better way to put it. And one thing I will say about Batman and Robin is uh, he actually, and I think I've ever seen a director actually do this, he openly apologized to the public yeah. for making Batman and Robin the way he did. Because of fact, he admitted the main focus of himself and mainly producers were to sell toys. Yeah. So all those super stylized shit that you see in Batman and Robin, it was meant to sell toys. Uh, I don't think it was really that profitable in terms of their intention, but it ruined what could have been a pretty decent movie. And still have one of those uh, Batman and Robin collection <coughs> glasses from McDonald's. It was the Mr. Freeze one. You remember the little yeah. mug? I mean, I'm pretty sure it's dope. I mean, it made them something. Yeah, little frosty mugs. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but aside from the Batman thing, uh, Joel, Shockham, Joel Schumacher, excuse me, uh, did have some great contributions in terms of uh, the film industry. I think he was one of the co-writers of The Wiz, or he wrote The Wiz, the Michael Jackson, Diana Ross movie. Uh, he also did uh, one of the great vampire movies of the 80s, The Lost Boys. That was Joel Schumacher. And two of my favorite uh, legal dramas of the 90s, which I mentioned in his uh, when I talked about him on Belsiverse, uh, The Client with Susan Sarandon and Tommy Lee Jones. He directed that. And also A Time to Kill, which is actually filmed in my hometown in, um, in Alabama. Uh, well, it more, more accurately, the Wetumpka, Alabama, which is kind of like a suburb or whatever, but basically my hometown. And actually, Octavia Spencer, another hometown favorite, is actually in that movie. Um, and of course, you know, the famous line, Sam Jackson, yes, he deserved to die, and I hope he burned in hell. That shit was from A Time to Kill. Well, um, and, and that was a crazy one too, because if I remember right, wasn't that uh, Grisham? That was a Grisham novel. And yeah, that I played the clown was too. Yeah, well, and what I'm saying is specifically with this one as a Grisham novel, if I remember correctly, that was the one that was the hardest to get him to sign off on because for him, it meant so much personally. And I think because if you, people who really follow this in the film industry a lot, they'll notice a lot of these big authors, Clancy, King, these different guys, you'll hear them talk about um, problems they have with adaptations. Um, and, a, and a big chunk of that is, you know, when you write a novel, there's zero constraints. You can do whatever you want. That's the, I had Tom always used to tell us, if you want to be an autocrat, write a novel. You can do whatever you want. And if you're filmmaking, it's too cool, and there's certain things you have to do. And so, for example, probably the single biggest one that's a problem for novelists, you know, stuff like that, you have to, number one, realize you're going to stuff fine. You give me a 900-page novel, there's no way I can give you a movie that's going to encompass everything. Even if I manage to keep... I mean, if you, if you tried to go into a shot for shot and figure out how to make all the monologue and voiceover stuff, you know, nobody's going to sit there for six hours and watch a movie. So you're already going to be looking at losing stuff. And, and anyway, between Schumacher and what he was able to pull off and then uh, bringing in, uh, all right, all right, Mr. McConaughey, they managed to, to get um, Risham comfortable enough that they're able to get this thing made. And if you haven't seen that film, Sit down and watch it, because it's a killer film. It is a great film. Uh, Time to Kill is a great film. Um, but again, rest in peace to Joe Schumacher. And to Definitely gave us some stuff. In fact, I'm going to say, I'm going to do my top two. 
Time to Kill, Falling Down. My top two, Batman Forever and Lost Boys. Really? I love the Lost Boys. I like the Lost Boys, too. I just wore Batman Forever. <laughs> Fuck you. I like Batman Forever. I'm sorry. Uh, actually, for those of you who uh, get a chance, go on to YouTube and look up Fat Man on Batman. Kevin Smith and his partner, Mark Bernard, do a great commentary of uh, Batman Forever. Uh, they watch it. They do a watch along of it, and they do the commentary of the shit, and it's fantastic. Like it made me love the movie again. I'm like, yeah, this is actually good points. It's a really good point. They do a lot of good points in terms of, and they actually do some praising of Joel Schumacher. So give it a shot if you get a chance. All right. Wait, now, okay. My next Batman centric uh, fact that I brought up here. Bat. Uh, <laughs> this one actually shocked the shit out of me. Yeah. Michael. Yeah. Michael Keaton is in talks. With, uh, with the DC Extended Universe to return as Batman. <gasps> right? For the uh, Ezra Miller Flashpoint movie. And that, like, that's the one thing I've seen on my YouTube thing. Like, the thread has been just that shit for like the last day or two. Yeah, people are going nuts with the shit. Like, oh my God, he's back. Keaton's <laughs> back. Oh my God. Keaton's back. He's, he's finally back. And then, and then, of course, we did the. Our very first watch along on this show was the 89 Batman with Michael Keaton. And we talked about how much people can stand the fact that Michael Keaton was being Batman. But then this movie came out. Oh my God, he's the best Batman ever. And, and every- since then, yeah, every yeah, every live action Batman since him has been compared to Michael Keaton. Yeah. That's a fair assessment to say. Now, some could argue that the Christian Bale. Uh, interpretation is a superior Batman. I'm, I, I agree in terms of like acting wise, etc., etc. But just something about the Keaton Batman. Well, look, it just always sticks with me. There's a couple of things, right? So it's like there's there's that that affinity to how you're first introduced to something. So you think about you think about Batman in general. For you and me, and I know we talk about this a little bit, and I'll, I'll say for myself especially, Adam West. And that campy version of Batman, I, I got like crazy. I, mean, I still remember as a little kid, one of the things I do before we go to bed every night is crawl up uh, with my dad. We'd watch same bad channel, same bad time, episode of Batman. Okay, now it's time to go to bed. And by the time I saw like a big crazy Batman, with really cool caps and, stuff, and like nothing against, you know, George uh, um, Clooney, but it's still, it's still my critique. And until we got to that, you Dark Knight series from Chris Nolan and Christian Bale, it was still it's still Michael Keaton. It's almost been that's the thing. I think it's almost fair to look at there's the Dark Knight series almost as a standalone, kind of like you gotta go with like you know the Miller series, right? That's its own thing. It's not even fair really to compare it to the other Batmans. And then there's Batman. Yeah. And that's kind of where I'm at. Like I still I'm still all about Batman. I don't know how this uh was it Patton is going to do as a, as a new Batman? Oh, uh, Robert Pattinson. Yeah, Pattinson. Batman. yeah I'm like, eh, you know, I mean, we, we, we look, we can go back. We'll, we'll spend hours on Batman if we go too deep into this one. Two. So, say Keaton coming back as Batman now, even though it's obviously going to be an older Batman. Yeah. Fantastic for the franchise, fantastic for the character, and I'm really excited to see where this goes. Much needed boost for the DCAU. A much needed boost. Now, they actually have hinted that uh, the studios, in terms of DC, have been working together to kind of like 
because they've had multiple multiple divisions in terms of what they do. Like there's the CW people, there's the people that do DC Universe, there's the people that you know working on the movies. Now we talked about this before last year. The Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover on the CW merged everything together in terms of like all the different franchises came together. The biggest cameo from the DCAU in that franchise was Ezra Miller being Grant Gustin's Flash, like Flash's meat. And then, of course, in the beginning, there's references to both the 89 Batman and the 66 Batman. In 89, you see, uh, what's his name, um, Robert Wall as a, a Knox. You see him on a bench, and you see there's a picture of the Keaton Batman. It's just talking about that Batman. And then there's another shot. You see an older Burt Ward walking a dog dressed in Robin's colors and seeing, like, holy, holy crimson, holy something. He said something because, like, it's like this, like, crimson cloud wiping out humanity. And he said, holy crimson rays of light or some shit like that. He did a, he did a holy whatever. Yeah. Uh, it was nice to see, man. But so you can tell these franchises have been talking. So to see, you know, the 89 Batman mixing up with the new DCAU, like I said, it's, it's a hell of a boost. Like, fan interest is, like, teeming right now. They, like, a lot of people, they give a shit about the fucking Ezra Miller Flashpoint movie. Now everybody wants to talk about it. Just for this one casting. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so that's really all I got in terms of uh, dropping the news. You got anything else? I got, I got uh, one piece of uh, rugby news. Um, so, I, you know, fans out there that might pay attention to, uh, to football a little bit, you may have heard of Marquette King. Uh, he is a professional football player. He's a punter. And he made a little bit of news uh, this week when he said, uh, and I quote, if I played rugby, I would dominate that sport which is a fantastic thing to say, especially when you get the attention of the world-class All Blacks who promptly invited him to come and try out and do some training. <laughs> uh, if you don't know rugby, uh, this might be a good time to say, go to ushooker.com, uh, watch some of the videos we've got there. Um, go to the uh, Nosebreakers and uh, Try Savers uh, section. Watch some guys beat the ever-loving hell out of each other. If you don't understand rugby, it's 80 minutes nonstop. Uh, they don't stop. They go, they go, they go. No pads, mouthpiece, cleats, and just gigantic men trying to destroy each other as they move the ball from one end of the field to the other. Uh, it's basically a bunch of tight ends, middle linebackers trucking each other. Just for the hell of it. It's a lot of fun. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm really hopeful that this turns into something and he's uh, – rash enough to try because it can make for some wonderful, wonderful for the rest of the project for years to come. So uh, maybe bring your ego down a little bit and uh, you'll save your life. <laughs> and also, since you brought it up, before we get into the meat and potatoes, I want to mention to uh, our fans out there, go ahead and go to teespring.com, go to the Bustleverse page. We actually added a new shirt inspired by our podcast last week. So if you want to get in touch with your inner Chunky Child, go get yourself a Chunky Child shirt uh, at Belser. <laughs> and also put in the uh, a promo code uh, BELSER2020, B-E-L-S-E-R-2020, and get yourself 20% off. Like I said, we got other uh, pieces of apparel on there on Belserverse. Actually, we're starting to get more into Belserverse again because I feel like I've been neglecting the last few months. I've been focusing on writing and other things. But we're getting back to the Belserverse store. We'll get you some more merch out there. So go over there and get yourself a nice conversation started. Get, get in touch with your chunky child. Get yourself a chunky child shirt in different colors, made for men and women. We also have we also have a powerful toddlers. So you, if you have a chunky child, get it for your chunky child. 
I'm, I'm, I might have to get one when I have a kid someday. <laughs> there you go. Get yourself, a, get yourself a chunk of child thing, man. I'm, shit, you love it, bro. Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks. So that was dropping that news. Dropping that news. All right. So let's go ahead and get into the meat and potatoes of this particular podcast. Uh, we're going to talk about the life, times, and career of the great Michael J. Fox. Mm-hmm. And you, like myself, are both, we're both kids of the 80s and 90s. And Michael J. Fox has been a major major force in terms of like um cinematic uh cinematic and television stuff really of what we liked over the last you know 30 plus years um me personally uh my first recollection of michael j fox was actually it was not back to the future it was teen wolf that's my first recollection of michael j fox because i love that movie and then i kind of found out oh he does other stuff okay cool and then i and then i looked on tv and i saw reruns of you know family ties Oh, he does that shit. Oh, cool. And then I saw some of the other movies, of course, the Back to the Future movies. Those, those are just, those are just coming out as I was younger. So, you yeah. know, got to the Back to the Future movies, and then, you know, you watch into some of his other stuff, like you know, Doc Hollywood, Secret of My Success, and uh, what's the shit? Uh, what's the Casualties of War, The Hard Way, you know, all these other great movies that he's done. And then, of course, the Fandom kicked up again when he started on Spin City on ABC. Yeah. Great series. Great show. Oh, yeah, phenomenal show. Uh, so, yeah, Michael J. Fox has always been a big influence on me. I've been, been a big fan of his for as long as I can remember. And I'm happy that we get a chance to talk about him. Man. Yeah, me, me too. I mean, I, I actually uh, I did get introduced to him via Back to the Future. I, I remember we'd just gotten cable. Uh, I was living in Utah with, uh, with my parents. I was a little kid. And uh, it came on one Saturday morning, and I sat there and watched it with my dad, and I was immediately enthralled. Um, I've often joked, you know, because especially doing Michael J. Fox, but I still think there's a little part of me, yeah, if I met Michael J. Fox, I might be a little fanboy starstruck about it. Cause it's you know what I mean? Like, and again, mm-hmm. Just take nothing away from you know Spin City and, and the myriad of other projects he's done. In fact, there's one of my favorite guest stars he ever did was on Rescue Me, which I'm sure yeah. we'll later as well. Um, he's he's one of those guys, one of those few guys, especially in the '80s, who managed to have a pretty stellar career and maintain um, you know a certain likability and almost a, a nice guy. You know, he's he's probably of obviously he's younger, but of, of everybody. Probably the closest thing to, uh, to a Tom Hanks in terms of a, an everyman who's totally relatable and comes across as a very genuine and nice individual. Uh, <laughs> we'll get into some of the, the sadder stuff with his, his personal life later and kind of how he's yeah. a deal on some things. But um, yeah, I'm stoked to be getting into talking about Michael J. Fox tonight. All right, so you know how we do this. We're going to go ahead and get into a little bit of his early life. Uh, Michael Andrew Fox was born in. Uh, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, on June 9, 1961. He is actually four, uh, five feet four inches tall. Um, he was born to uh, Phyllis and um, my, and William Fox. Uh, his folks moved uh, from uh, Edmonton to uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, when he was 10 years old, where his father, a sergeant in the Canadian Army, retired. He is of Irish, English, and Scottish ancestry, which they actually kind of play up in Back to the Future 3. Uh, yeah, yeah. 
he has a younger sister who is actually a stage actress, uh, Kelly Fox. Uh, he received his first guitar at age ten, age eight, excuse me, and he taught himself how to play. Uh, uh, it's, it's during the early years of his life he actually de uh, developed his desire to act. At age fifteen, he actually auditioned for a show playing a ten-year-old. Uh, the show was called Leo and Me. It started in nineteen seventy-eight, and this is actually a really crazy fact. Fox is actually one of four members of the cast of that show to develop Parkinson's disease. And it's such a high number that a lot of people are like, there's actually been some investigations to that, like thinking maybe there's some sort of environmental factor at play. Because like I said, four people from the same show all get Parkinson's. Yeah, but can you, you can help me maybe more on this. I know you did uh, have had more medical training being a you know, former corpsman and all that. Is there, mm -hmm. is there something causes it because from what I remember they were saying the two things that there's there's obviously supposed to be a genetic component and they were saying something also um, repeated uh, concussive injuries could maybe have something to do with it except if I remember right Muhammad Ali developed it if I remember right like uh, Adolf Hitler possibly developed it in a video of him another telltale things that they're thinking could have been a result of concussive injuries when he was in World War One. Um, I'm just curious if you know anything on the causation side of Parkinson's, especially since you're pointing out four people. Yeah. Fact, that's just uh, that is kind of weird. I'll let you know right now. My expertise in terms of medical stuff is, uh, extends past uh, doesn't extend past basic nursing, but all I've ever heard of uh, Parkinson's disease is being genetic, and also the concussive to him because of the Muhammad Ali and all the stuff and other people contracting Parkinson's who were former athletes. Um, but main, the main one in terms of like all the people that you know that are famous that get it is genetic. So uh, like, like the fact that they would say that it's an environmental thing, it will lead to some other you know innovations. I've heard, I haven't heard anything in terms of environmental factors for Parkinson's personally. So it is concussive. I mean, the other thing too, when you look at a lot of the different things he did throughout his career, I mean, he with his comedy a lot. He is very physical, but I don't think he's too physical to the point where he, like, he was, like, banging himself up like that. I'm just saying, I mean, he did yeah, yeah, he did, he did do a lot of physical stuff, though. Because he, he did a lot of his own stunts, which is uh, one of those things, too, that you also have to give him some serious credit for. I mean, he got banged up. So, anyway, just a question. If, yeah. if one of our fans out there happens to uh, have any medical training or wants to do, uh, get us the latest from Wikipedia. <laughs> That'd be nice, yeah. On the Facebook yeah. Now back to his early life. He actually quit high school one year before graduating in his senior year. Uh, he actually said he regrets quitting high school. is is a stupid, stupid, youthful mistake. Uh, though he never actually did get his high school diploma, he actually received an honorary high school diploma from uh, John Dewey High School in uh, Coney Island, New York, uh, when he spoke at their graduation in 1984. So, uh, also, he recounted that one of his teachers. When he, when he announced that he was going to be dropping out, one of the teachers told him, you know, you're not going to be cute forever. And then he responded, well, maybe just enough, sir. Maybe just long enough, sir. And he said, come find out with Wolf Wright. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <So. laughs> but yeah, uh, of course, we talked about he initially got his uh, first little taste of acting in Canadian television and movies. Uh, he realized he had a love for acting after he appeared on stage in a, uh, a play called The Shadow Bots. Mm -hmm. At 18, he moved to L.A. and was offered a few TV roles, but they stopped coming in, and he was basically surviving off of...
You, your audio cut out. You're surviving off of what? Uh-oh. <laughs> I think we lost your audio again, man. All right, folks, hang in with us for a second. Let's see. Uh, he's going to try to fix his, uh, his audio here. All right, we're going to push pause on this one here real quick. We'll get right back to you. There we go. Uh, all right, here we go. Now, uh, like I was saying, <laughs> like I was saying, he uh, spent uh, months in L.A. surviving on boxes of mac and cheese. That's what I was saying. Mac and cheese. Yeah, mac and cheese. I survived off mac. Uh, yeah. Gotta do what you gotta do, man. Yep. And so basically, uh, when he was paying his dues as a struggling actor, he actually had to sell. He had a sectional couch. He actually had to sell pieces of the couch to a neighbor to make money. <laughs> he also sold uh, books at a local bookstore and uh, cash for groceries. And he also had to borrow money from his parents to pay for his rent. Now, like I mentioned before, his birth name is Michael Andrew Fox. So why the name change? So uh, Fox was actually discovered by Ronald Sheldo and made his television debut on a film called Letters from Frank under the name just Michael Fox. So he continued, uh, he continued to use that name, but when he registered for a SAG, um, couldn't find out that it already was a Michael Fox, who was a veteran actor. Uh, and then he actually explained his uh, documentary, um, his, his autobiography, Lucky Man, uh, he needed to come up with a different name. He didn't like the sound of Michael A. Fox because, like, you know, Fox comes around because, cause like, you know, I'm saying I'm attractive, shit like that, or whatever. And it also sounded, it also it just sounded too Canadian to him. So he didn't like uh, the sound of Andy or Andrew. So he decided to uh, develop the name Michael J. Fox as a tribute to actor Michael J. Pollard. And for those of you who don't know who Michael, jo jo uh, Michael J. Pollard is, you ever see the movie Scrooged? Uh, there's one dude, the homeless dude that freezes stuff. That's Michael J. Pollard. And he actually—he was great in that movie. Yeah, I was gonna say I mean, that's a that's a great tribute to give. He's a solid actor. Yes, he was. Yeah, he's also Mr. Mitch's Pillow on Superboy. <laughs> <laughs> the first live-action Mr. Mitch's Pillow. <laughs> All right, now let's go ahead and get to Michael's big break, Family Ties. Now, uh, when he uh, auditioned for the role of uh, Alex P. Keaton, uh, he actually. And Michael Michael J. Fox himself actually added the P to Michael P. Uh, Alex P. Keaton when he was doing the ad lib in his audition, and the writers loved it. They kept it. Uh, apparently, his uh, first audition was deemed terrible by the creator Gary Goldberg because he came across as too much of a smart aleck. Uh, then the uh, casting director Ju uh, Judith Weiner, she really liked Fox and back. Hey, come on, just give him another shot. Give give Michael another try. So he, Michael J. Fox tried a different approach. The audition went great. Yeah, for Michael J. Fox the part. Now, one of the main contributing factors to Michael J. Fox getting that part is because the fact that <laughs> Matthew Broderick was unavailable. 
That was the original person intended to play Alex P. Keaton on Family Ties. <laughs> Apparently, he was doing like some play. Oh no, no. What it was he's a long, he's a lifelong New Yorker. He didn't want to move to LA to do a show. So, yeah. lucky Michael J. Yeah. I think between yeah. you gotta say, I think Michael J. Fox still managed to age better. <laughs> if I can much, <laughs> much better, yeah. But you know, like those are your choices. Well, Warner McFly, oh, yeah. Warner McFly, or Ferris Bueller. Yeah, and I was gonna say, and I, I like Roderick. Don't get me wrong. Like I thought he was great in uh, in the the uh, film adaptation of Producers. Like, yeah. But Michael J. Fox, I think, aged a little better. That's, that's, that's exactly. I'm with that. Yeah. So, uh, and actually, uh, funny enough, uh, Michael J. Fox didn't have his own phone. So what he did was he uh, gave when they gave his number, he gave the number of a payphone to a pioneer chicken in Hollywood. He happened to live nearby. And what he would do, he basically just sat there and say, hey, I'm going to be home during these particular hours. And he just, he would just sit there and wait for the call and the answer. And he, luckily, luckily enough, he was there to pick it up. That's fantastic. One of those great actors. Yep. And again, he was a broke young actor. Uh, during some of the first season, he actually uh, he actually hitchhiked from Brentwood to Hollywood because he had no car. And then uh, when uh, Meredith Baxter Bernie found out, she actually let him ride with her um, to the show. Is actually and uh, actually he wrote his dad uh, telling him like when we, right after he got the part of Alex P. Keaton, um, his dad actually told him, you know what, you sh- you should just pull up the curtain and you know. Um, Get over this whole acting thing, okay? You know, you're not you're like you've been out there for long. You're struggling. Just come back home. You're not. You're not. You're probably not gonna make it. And then a couple weeks later, he was taking the bus to go shoot the show. Just go shoot the show. <laughs> yeah, it works out, man. <laughs> and uh, yeah. times in the Hollywood stories, um, people have gotten to the point where they're gonna quit. They're gonna give up. Maybe they had a little success. Maybe maybe they didn't have much success, or they're just you know disenchanted with the whole thing. And they're on their way out the door. Or somebody's telling them they need to get out the door. And that last phone call comes, and it, it shifts it around. I heard um, um, Bradley Cooper. I, I heard him at this SAG event I went to with a buddy of mine way back when. And right before he got the hangover, he decided, all right, I'm done with Hollywood. I'm not getting anywhere with my career. That wedding craft. Actually in Florida, if I remember correctly, and he just decided, ah, whatever. When he got the call to to come back and do Hangover, and I mean, you know, the rest is history. He's been fantastic ever since. So it's it's a good yeah. thing Michael J. Fox is one of those hard-headed guys because we would all missed out on so much fun if he hadn't stuck it out. And that's actually stories like this are inspiration to a young actor like myself, who uh, you know. Same thing. I've been told. Actually, funny enough, I've only been told give up once, uh, and that was actually when I first started out here. Uh, it was I was in the military. Uh, I just got out. I was struggling. I actually asked a friend to help me out. Uh, he had just got back from Iraq. I knew he had some extra money because they always give you extra money. And the motherfucker actually looked in my face and said, "Maybe you should just pull up chops and leave. You just can't cut it out here." And he walked away. And I was like. The moment, like, and I, I tell people to this day, the moment he said that, it was the moment I knew I wasn't going nowhere. 
Well, say, you know what? Like, you know, do something. You got to sell off what little bullshit you got here. You're going to make it. You're going to do something. And that was almost, well, that was over 10 years ago. Well, for a little, uh, a little rah-rah, I'll say, uh, I've, been doing, I've been doing the behind-the-scenes thing for a while. I'm in a not horrible spot right now, but I will say I've seen a lot of folks in between where I just knew, I just knew they need to quit. I've never been the one to tell them that, but I've seen them been like, what you're trying to do as a fill in the blank, that's not your skill set, work on something else. Um, again, this isn't just to be a, a whole raw raw pat on the back thing, but you're doing what you're supposed to do. It's going to be a time. I don't know what the plan is. It's going to be a time's going to hit for you, and uh, and it's all going to come together because I mean, you got talent, my friend. And like I said, we can we've offline and talked about some other folks in projects you've done where I've been like, eh, I don't know about those other guys. You're going to get there. So I'm glad you uh, you didn't listen to him. And if that's what it took to galvanize you so you ain't going to quit, then thank God for him. Yeah. Because everybody else, basically, yourself included, has been like, fucking go for it. Dude. Your parents included. And I, I told my parents this. Like, I told them I'd done a few things here and there. And then I finally told them straight up, like, hey, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to move to LA and I'm going to go for it. And I thought I thought they'd just say, come on, don't be foolish. You know what I'm saying? Get a job. And shit. To my surprise, they both were like, boy, you only live once. Go for it. That's all I need to do. Yeah. Been up in LA ever since. Thank God you, thank God you are. <laughs> damn right, damn right, man. <laughs> uh, so let's get back to the story because I'm getting a little too teary-eyed. <laughs> uh, but uh, speaking of Merida Baxter Bernie, stop. <laughs> speaking of Merida Baxter Bernie and Michael J. Fox, they actually met a couple years prior on a show called Family by Aaron Spelling. Uh, I think Meredith was one of the stars and uh, Michael J. Fox did a guest spot. I think it was a 1980 episode called Such a Fine Line where he played a, a 14-year-old in love with an older woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Meredith Baxter Bernie played the older woman's sister. And like I said, during the first season, Meredith would drive Michael to the set. Uh, much of the humor of the show came from the whole cultural divide of the 80s because the fact the younger generations were rejecting the counterculture of the 60s embracing you know, materialism and you know, conservative politics of the 80s and you know, Reaganomics years and shit. So Family Ties was sold to, the, uh, to NBC with the pitch, hip parents, square kids. That was the pitch of Family Ties, which is pretty much what it was. You know, the two hippie parents played by Meredith Baxter Bernie and uh, Michael Gross. And like, I swear, that is the most quintessentially white looking white man I've ever seen in my life is Michael. Like every time I see like a white dad, like I think Michael Gross. <laughs> Seriously, like like dude, like everybody's like, well, you know, whoever's the ultimate TV dad, whoever's those, a oh, fucking Michael Gross in terms of white guys, that is the ultimate TV dad. <laughs> like that's all the that's the only one I ever see, either him or Alan Thicke. It's one of the two. Yeah, I I probably go yeah. just because I think I'm I'm a little more familiar with his work. I, I feel he was growing pains, right? Show me the smile again. Don't want to know minute on your right. You got me started. <laughs> I, I watched that show all the way through at least twice. It was it was on the Disney Channel when I was a kid. I love. I used to love the fucking uh, the Adam West joke. He said he talking to the kid Boner. Boner. <laughs> His name was Boner on, on Growing Pains. <laughs> as long as we got each other. We get the, that's one of the best TV songs ever. 
We get to everything that comes our way. Maybe rain or shine all the time. We got each other. Share the laughter, the share the laughter, the share the laughter, sharing the laughter and love. Brother. Actually, fuck, fuck that. Family Ties had a dope one, too. I'm, I'm getting to that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, the Family Ties had a dope one, too. Uh, and then, of course, um, atten- originally the parents were intended to be the main characters of the show, but uh, the positive response to Michael J. Fox's performance as Alex got to the point where after the, fu- the fourth episode, Michael became the show's breakout, uh, breakout star. And they started focusing the show around Alex and then everybody else. Um, apparently, Meredith Baxter-Brandy actually talks about her memoir. There was actually some tension on the set of the show because of the fact that she and Michael Gross were kind of annoyed by how much attention Michael J. Fox was getting, and their characters were being basically ignored. Now, at one point, apparently in the sign of protest, both Michael Gross and Meredith Baxter-Brandy actually walked on set with one leg bounded together because they felt they, you know, they were, they were like you know one character. So. It just, you know, they just they would stick together because the characters are so bland and interchangeable that they just, they just felt that they were one boring uniparent creature. So, <laughs> yeah, uniparent. That's what they, that's what they use. Yeah, yeah. But uh, of course, going to the uh, character of Alex. Actually, no, fuck it. Let me do the thing. What would we do, baby, without us? What would we do, baby, without us? And I ain't no reason we can't love each other. What we do, baby, without us? Wait, wait. Shalalala. Shalalala. You gotta do the shalalala part. That's the that's the dope part. Shalalala. I think it's Johnny Math. Yeah, Johnny Mathis and Denise Williams, if I believe. They did. They did the theme song that to us. Uh, okay, so going back into the actual character itself, Alex P. Keaton was an intelligent and ambitious young Republican with one goal in life to be successful and, of course, make money. Uh, Alex's hero was Richard Nixon. Uh, he attended Leland University, and he actually had two very significant um, relationships on the show, Ellen Reed and Lauren Miller. Ellen was played by his then-girlfriend and now-wife, uh, Tr- uh, Tracy uh, Pollard. I believe that's how you pronounce her last name. They met on the show. She actually, uh, she actually said in the interview, she thought he was kind of full of himself when she met him. Because he, like, the success of the show just kind of got to his head a little bit. But they actually, you know, looked up. They became, you know, lovers. And then now they're married. They actually have a, couple, uh, a number of children together. I think they have three kids together. Yeah. So, and they've been married, like, over 30 years, man. So she's been with them through the whole get down. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. good woman. And I know for a fact they're actually really good friends with uh, Clark Gregg and uh, Jennifer Grey. Um, so, yeah, you see them a lot on like Instagram. You see their Instagrams a lot. They, they're together a lot. Uh, but yeah, like uh, at the re- a recurring theme throughout the whole show is that you know, of course, he will bicker with his parents because the parents are like super liberal and he's super conservative. And then you know, there's always some kind of scheme where he would try to you know get rich, and usually we end up like some like. It, it will usually end up in some misadventure, and he will end up, you know, having to apologize for his, you know, greedy, money-grubbing ways. Uh, yeah. So um, they actually apparently the uh, producer Goldberg said we actually had a structure we inherited from um, 
Jim Brooks and Alan Burns, which uh, was six scenes and a tag. Then the last scene was uh, Alex Apologizes. Every show, we just left it up there. You know what I'm saying? Alex Apologizes. It's just, it just some version of that. You know? now, they would change up the scenarios, but it always ends with Alex Apologizes. Uh, now, the uh, portrayal of Alex, uh, Alex P. Keaton as a likable conservative, kind of like money-grubbing little brat almost, uh, but he was actually likable. And he was a very important, very important part to the show's success. Uh, they said, uh, without Alex, I don't think, uh, with Alex, I didn't think I was having a sympathetic character. Those were not the traits that I aspired to. I didn't want my kids to aspire to either. But at the end of Family Ties, when it went off the air, um, then the New York Times did actually get a piece said, uh, they had a picture of Michael J. Fox and Alex, and they said the, the line, greed with the face of an angel. Hmm. And he said, that's true. Michael J. Fox will make things work, and the audience simply cannot access the darker side of what he was try actually trying to be. They actually they, they just like him too much. Hmm. Now, now, at his peak, Family Ties was actually uh, drew one-third of the households in America, and it actually was the second most-watched TV show in America at the time, right behind the Cosby show. That's exactly where they put it. And actually, it became... Those two shows were actually the beginning of NBC's must-see TV Thursday night, which of course we eventually to go on to have like Seinfeld and Friends and all those other shows. But the first two that really popped that shit off, uh, Cosby and Family Ties. Yeah. So, <coughs> yeah, like, and then like, um, actually, the only reason that it kind of slipped off was that uh, around season five of the Cos around season five of um, Family Ties in like '87, '88. Bill Cosby actually requested that another show focus on African Americans follow him, uh, and that show became a different world. Mm -hmm. So, uh, because of that, uh, Family Ties was actually moved from Thursday night to Sunday night. And as a result of the uh, shift, it dropped from number two to number 17. And then the ratings declined further into season seven, and eventually the show was canceled. Yeah. Well, and that's, and that's, I mean, this is a <coughs> the time slot you got really had a lot to do with your success or failure. Yes, it does. I mean, that's, that's a, you, yeah, like I say, you're directly behind the most successful show on television. Well, and what I was going to say too is, you know, there's a ability <coughs> thing. So people have a schedule, this is what they're doing, it becomes part of their routine. And when you move that around that big, it becomes more difficult for folks to incorporate it in. So, you know, the, the one of the best things, honestly, about the, the streaming move and where we are now is that, um, you know, as far as shows go, if it's good and it can stand on its own, uh, it doesn't really matter because people will they'll, they'll incorporate it into their lives if they want it. The, the hard part is, is that before it was easy to get an introduction, right? So if you if you were fortunate as a producer, you had this, this good show and you were able to go on after the Cosby's. Uh, or you could go on after uh, you know, different strokes or whatever. You'd be in a position where it's like, okay, it's going to be easy to sell in. And if we can retain 70, 80% of their audience, then it's automatically going to make us successful. And so it makes it a lot of that introduction. And I mean, you can, like I said, we could get in the weeds forever on the, the difficulty now, because if you don't have a marketing budget to go along with it, and Netflix or Hulu or whoever doesn't love you, they're not going to put you on that masthead. You're not going to pop up first log in and you know god only knows you might languish in obscurity forever yeah, <laughs> yeah it is that's actually very true now speaking to the show's success uh brandon turtikoff who was uh, one of the heads of nbc 
actually felt that Michael J. Fox was too short in relation to the other actors playing his parents, and they actually he actually tried to get Michael J. Fox replaced. Uh, then uh, Brandon Turkoff apparently repeatedly said, "This is not the kind of face that you will find on the on a lunchbox." Well, after the show's success, Michael J. Fox actually presented Brandon Turkoff with a custom-made lunchbox with the inscription to Brandon. This is for you to put your crow in. Love and kisses, Michael J. Fox. <laughs> and Brandon Kurtikoff apologized, and he's, apparently he kept the uh, lunchbox in his office for the rest of his NBC career. I mean, look, and, and to his credit, that's, that's a class move on his part to be like, yep, I got that one wrong. Not only did I get it wrong, I got it way wrong. And I'm going to keep it up as a monument to how wrong I was on it. Because yeah. most guys don't ever admit fault, ever. They try ever. to like, no, see, because I, I – I, that way I pushed you harder and so blood and I give you some BS song and dance. So much credit to him. Yeah. Uh as a result of being on Family Ties and then of course being in movies like, you know, Teen Wolf and uh, Back to the Future, Michael J. Fox became a team idol. He was in, you know, Tiger Beat and all those in team magazines constantly. They were constantly doing pictures of him and centerfolds of him, etc. etc. Et so he was a big thing in the eighties. Uh the show itself, Family Ties ran for seven seasons. Starting in uh, so September 22nd, 1982, and any of May 14, 1989. The cast actually has been kind of shy about doing any reboots or like uh, reunions because of the fact they're just so tired of the show that <laughs> they just they were just happy to leave the characters where they were, just going with their lives. But they they um, they do in contact with each other, and actually they have um, done other things together, which I'm going to get into a little bit later. So we're going to go into the next TV show that Michael Fox did. Stan City mm-hmm. on ABC. Uh, also created by David Goldberg and Bill Lawrence, the same people that created Family Ties. Yeah. And of course, it uh, sh- the show was basically a fictionalized version of the local government in New York City, and it followed uh, the mayor, Randall Winston, played by Barry Bostwick, who was great. <laughs> this is the absent-minded mayor, and his staff as they run the city. But the real person in charge was the deputy mayor, Mike Flaherty, played by Michael J. Fox. Yeah. Uh, Mike was very talented at his job. He's constantly doing spin work for the constant chaos caused by the mayor and his faux pas and shit like that. But he was not so good at fan- managing his uh, personal life, which is actually kind of an underlying theme of the show. He was constantly trying to have a girlfriend, but he's also having to deal with the mayor's messes. And, like, yeah, it was very good dichotomy. Workaholic, so he he didn't have time for a personal life, and his commitment to the mayor, to the city of New York, and to his job was what always seemed to get in his way. Even when he when he tried to, because multiple times I'm sure he get into it, tried to uh, have a relationship with somebody in the office with the uh, the idea they're going to understand. It was still it didn't matter. Something was always bigger and always threw him. Yeah. So uh, what happened was, in terms of the creation of the show, of course, get Goldberg and Lawrence had wanted to do another show with Michael J. Fox. And they were like, they remember the family ties years and how much fun they had and what a wonderful person he was. Like, you know, let's do another one. And then they called Michael. Actually, it was Jeff Katzenberg to call Michael J. Fox. He's like, hey, you want to do the show? He's like, yeah, let's do this. Yeah, let's, let's get back on this thing. So uh, apparently he actually put out feelers to the producers in 95 to see if there was a place for him on the TV landscape again. Uh, Goldberg called Fox and asked if he wanted to be interested in working with him because they sent him the pilot script to Spoon City. In uh, in the Goldberg's biography, uh, Sit Ugu Sit, his name is autobiography. Because well, you know the famous thing, yeah, yeah, the famous thing at the end of uh, 
show. Sit, Lulu, sit. Yeah, it was a. What's the name of his production company? Goldberg something. I believe it's, I believe it's like something. It had a picture of his dog, Ubu, was what popped yeah. Say the name of the thing, and then it'd just be him. Sit, Ubu, sit. Sit. Good dog. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, it was all, but he mentioned that um, apparently, uh, yeah, apparently, uh, <laughs> uh, apparently Fox actually called Goldberg. What? What? I was saying, it's like at the end when it's always that and it's dun, 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 dun. oh yeah uh, for the Simpsons yeah it's weird I like, I like when they do I, actually, I like it when they do the Halloween version because it's like an organ it's, it's crazy how a lot of those early production tags that they put on the end are just ingrained in your brain isn't it oh the uh, uh, the South Park one da, 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 da. Yeah, good production tag, man. Always, it's always memorable, man. Always get a good production tag. We'll find one for like some 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 shit we're gonna do. We'll find a company. Even even in the movies, like the Gary Sanchez productions. Oh yeah, it's always done on the table, and he spills the coffee as he's pouring it out. It's just the sound of the gun hitting. Oh yeah, and uh, what's that shit? Uh, Happy Madison was the golf ball thing, and it's like his dad. That's great. Yeah, it's great stuff. All right, so, uh, yeah, Michael J. Fox called Goldberg to a mutual friend and then, like, you know, announced pretty much gave his intention to return to television. They decided to work together and blah, blah, blah. They sketched it out. So what they sketched out in terms of the character was they wanted Alex P. Keaton with power. What if an adult Alex P. Keaton got power? And then they went and they pinned off the script. They faxed it to Michael J. Fox who faxed him back after like 15 minutes. He said, I love it. I'm in. Let's make a show. So, Fantastic. Yeah. So apparently, actually, this is funny. Uh, apparently, the mo- the main uh, role model for Mike Flaherty was George Stephanopoulos. Hmm. I can see. Based on, They're about and basically, because he, yeah, because <laughs> he was Clinton's uh, political advisor. So he's cleaning up Clint. He's cleaning up Clinton's business. <laughs> well, and did you ever see uh, the War Room documentary? Mm-hmm. You remember that scene where it's like right before the election, and you've got Stephanopoulos sitting in there, and he's like threatening someone not to come out with more sexual allegations against her. He's like, "Hey, we're gonna win," and uh, you know, you don't want to be on the other side of this once we're in the office. It's like exactly. There's that dark side that they were just barely giving you glimpses of back then before the curtain mm-hmm. got pulled back. The same thing, short little short little guy with nice hair. So having to take care of some guy who is screwing all kinds of stuff up with their ridiculous personal choices. And another and another uh, another drawback to a show that we've already done, Allie Wentworth, one uh, cast member of Living Color, is Mrs. George Stephanopoulos. No oh, shit, I didn't realize that. You're right. Allie Wentworth from Allie Wentworth from Living Color, the white girl from Living Color, is Mrs. George Stephanopoulos. Forgot all about that. <laughs> yep, that's his wife. Well, good for you. Good for you, George. Yeah, good for you, George. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, they uh, did. Uh, well, she did an episode of uh, "Comedians and Cars with Coffee" because apparently <coughs> she's a uh, good friends with Jerry Seinfeld and his wife. So George and Allie are. So yeah, it is what it is. And uh, going back to that, uh, because of the fact that. Uh, Michael J. Fox actually had discovered at this point that he had Parkinson's. 
uh, he would actually have to hide his left hand because apparently he had a serious problem controlling his body. He would have to put his hand like you always like if you ever watch the show, you also you see him often with his hands in his pockets. I just, I just thought it was just part of the character, but yeah, because he he has hands in his pockets, doing little shoulder shrugs and stuff like that. I didn't realize yeah, exactly. he was having tremors that early. Exactly. Yeah. And then, uh, like I said, sometimes it would take a while for his meds to kick in, so he would do the things with his hands in his pockets. So. Yeah. Crazy. So in 98, he officially announced to the world he had Parkinson's disease. Now, as a result, new character played by Heather Locklear, Caitlin Moore, was introduced at the beginning of the 99-2000 season, uh, basically to help lessen Michael J. Fox's workload. Now, she, the character was uh, Mayor Winston's campaign manager when he decided to run for senator, and there was a lot of conflict between the two characters about who is really in charge of the mayor. Uh, their relationship, you know, of course, blossomed from a simple few to the point that they were actually trying to get romantic. But by the year 2000, Michael J. Fox's symptoms had got much worse. Yeah. And Michael announced that he was leaving the show at the end of the season to spend more time with his family and to raise awareness for Parkinson's. Now, the character actually left City Hall at the end of the uh, fourth season of the show. Uh, they, wrote, they wrote that he basically took the blame for an, alleged, for an alleged mafia link that the mayor didn't know he had. So, yeah, they, they, had, to, they had to take a graceful way to write him out, which was yeah. a shame. I mean, you know, we've got, we have a city business like that, you gotta take care of it. Yeah. And uh, as he left the show, they actually, a couple episodes going up into it, they did a lot of allusions to family ties. Specifically, uh, Michael Gross came back on the show as his therapist. This is dad on fucking Family Ties. Now, this therapist on uh, Spence City. Uh, Meredith Baxter Bernie played his mother. And at one point, they actually referenced a character named Mallory uh, in the, uh, one of the episodes. And the final, scene of the, the final scene of the show shows Michael Flaherty in Washington, D.C., being an environmental lobbyist. He's going to meet uh, this conservative uh, senator from Ohio named Alex P. P. That was the last scene of the show. Yeah, well, I, I thought I watched. I, hold on, though. It was the last show with Michael J. Fox because then what they did was they rolled it over and brought in the wild man who hadn't gone totally wild yet, Charlie Sheen, to essentially fill in on that one. And look, I'm not I'm not ever going to be the guy who's going to say that Michael J. Fox wasn't the best, but as far as replacing a character on a show, Charlie Sheen did okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he did. A, I'm just gonna say that he did, did okay. You're listening. Listening. You can't see it. Um, he's not necessarily <laughs> buying my my read on this situation. <laughs> he did okay. I will agree with you. He did okay. It was it was better than when Ashton Kutcher replaced him on Two and a Half Men. Much better. By a lot. I I, I give you that. It was much better than that shit. I agree with that. Uh, Still, yeah. he did good. He did yeah. good. It was different. I still watched it. Sure. You did. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's go ahead and get into the family and friends of Mr. Michael J. Fox. Of course, we mentioned his wife, Tracy Parlin. They've been married since July 1988. They have four children together. Uh, apparently, uh, on the show, uh, they had a love theme at this moment by Billy Barra and the Beaters. And uh, even though the show was original, the song was originally uh, originally released in 81. Uh, when they featured it on the show, 
went back to the top of the charts because of the popularity of the show. And basically, for at least 10 years into the marriage of uh, Tracy and Michael, everywhere they go, they could not go on a dance floor without somebody playing at this moment. Hmm. They saw them two together. Like, it's very nice, though. You know? uh, he also said uh, he's raised, uh, uh, hold on. Uh, he's raised, basically, he's a member of the uh, Reformed Jewish congregation in New York. His wife was raised Jewish. Uh, the ceremony had Jewish elements in it. And their four children have been raised Jewish. So, so <coughs> this when I was doing my research on his, on his personal side, but he he converted, didn't he? Yeah, he converted. He was a uh, Anglican initially. Yeah, no, right. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, he became a father the first time at uh, 1989 when his son Sam Michael Fox was born. Uh, and he they also had two other children, uh, Aquilin Fox, Catherine Fox, and Skylar Phyllis Fox. He also became another father again with Annabelle Fox. Uh, he is actually forbidden, forbidden any of his children from quitting high school because of the fact that you know he uh, he's actually demanding they have at least high school, at least two years of college if they want to pursue anything else. Uh, he's good friends with Cam Neely from the Boston Bruins. Uh, apparently, he attended Neely's retirement uh, at, at the Fleet Center in Boston. Uh, he's longtime friends with Dennis Leary. They both share a love of hockey. Yeah. And he's, uh, like I said, his wife and his, him and his wife are great friends with Clark Gregg from Angels of Shield and Jennifer Gray from Dirty Dancing. Well, it's because Michael J. Fox is a good Canadian. He's got to love hockey. Yeah. Got to turn in your maple leaf if you don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's go ahead and get into a few of the missed roles of Michael J. Fox. Now, in 82, um, Peter Marshall apparently had a wish fulfilling show called Fantasy. And uh, <clears throat> at one point, Michael J. Fox was on that. He mentioned he was actually a big fan of James Cagney. And to the surprise, James Cagney actually appeared on a tape segment, uh, hearing about Michael J. Fox's love for him, said him to keep it going. And apparently it brought Michael J. Fox to tears. And actually, uh, uh, Peter Marshall announced that Cagney had actually personally selected Michael J. Fox to play him in a biopic about him. Uh, mm -hmm. Of course, it never happened, but it would overwhelm Michael J. Fox with joy. Yeah, I mean, I would have been a killer. Mm -hmm. Now, he also was uh, uh, offered the role of Conrad in Ordinary People, but Timothy Hutton was uh, killed at that part. He won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar for it. Uh, oh, yeah, also, uh, Michael J. Fox was offered the part of uh, Tom, Tom Cruise's part in Recent Business. Which... Would have been interesting, and yeah, I'll, I'll out myself on this one because I was mixing around because they're very similar between the secret of my success and risky business uh, in the 80s. And, and I'm just turning in terms of general themes. I actually, I'll be honest, I was trying to talk about secret of my success, and I actually misnamed as risky business earlier. So I feel a little bit. Yeah, I remember that. I, re I remember that. Yeah, that's why. That's why I brought it up. And I remember yeah. we talked about it last time. I remember we talked about it last time. And I kept, I kept humming. Uh, yeah. Almost. <laughs> Yeah, I remember we brought up last time, and I kept doing our love from the real train. That's a really dope '80s song. That's the problem with soundtracks and songs in the '80s in general. They were either great or they were crap. There was no in between. True. I mean, That's like, very true. Even, even when it comes to scoring a film, 
there was either a killer score or it was garbage. Like there's there's none of those things you're like, yeah, you know, it was there. Like it's it's totally binary. Yeah. And, and also in a yeah. 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 And also in a very uh weird, almost kind of identical turn, um Michael J. Fox is actually considered for the role of Mark Kendall in the movie Once Bitten. That actually went to Jim Carrey. But like I said, it came around the same time, it was around 85. He had already done Teen Wolf, which is kind of similar. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, okay, but let's go and get, get into some trivia about Michael J. Fox. Uh, his acting mentor is Gary Goldberg, the producer of uh, Family Ties in Spin City. Uh, Michael J. Fox became a U.S. citizen in 1999. Uh, he actually injured his finger, he actually injured James Woods' finger in, on the set of The Hard Way. Uh, apparently, apparently James was throwing pop, uh, throwing him into a popcorn machine when his finger actually got caught in the buttonhole of Michael J. Fox's jacket, and he dislocated. Oh, that's yeah. painful. Yeah, it's painful. Yeah. Now there was a period when he was living, uh, uh, he's living and working in the U.S. illegally, and he would not return to Canada, you know, for fear of not being able to be allowed back in the U.S. So he actually eventually had to hire immigration lawyers to straighten that out, which he did. So. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a thing, uh, not to do too much of a digression, but um, you know, it, it can be pretty easy. You miss one set of paperwork and you can be on the wrong side of that and it can take years to unravel. Yeah. And uh, actually, yeah, yeah, it can be. And actually, um, when he was filming the movie Doc Hollywood in 1991, that's when he first noticed his finger twitching and then he was unable to control it and saw a doctor. That's when he got his diagnosis of Parkinson's in Well, and he kept a secret. He kept a secret for seven years. I was gonna say the fact that he was able to pretty much roll with it for for another ten and keep working on the regular. I mean, not just doing these guest bits that he gets here and there. That's you know, that's pretty. That's pretty good. I mean, I know some folks they get that diagnosis by the time they get it, it's a quick, quick downhill trajectory. So I mean, at least you know we spared that. We we're all able to more. More years of him entertaining the hell out of That's right. And also, real quick, he actually uh, told a great story on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson about uh, how he, uh, when he was a struggling actor in Hollywood, he was talking about like seeing you know rich guys with Ferraris and kept saying you know, how much they were assholes and jerks and like, I would never be one, I would never want to be one of those guys. And then as soon as he got successful, he wouldn't buy himself a Ferrari. <laughs> so. He actually owned a Ferrari uh, Madriel Coupe in 1987. So that actually me, there's a there's a bit that Patton Oswalt does does talking about people selling out and all these people always and how much even he used to be this guy just talk all this shit about oh I want to sell out I ain't ever sell out you should be a purist blah 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 and then he got offered an obscene amount of money to do stand up at uh, at some uh, uh, Indian casino in like Washington or something if I remember right and. Yeah. He, he found out what the number was. He said, I'm just going to tell you all right now. Um, I told them what I was done. Uh, you just let me know next time you need me here because I am sold. <laughs> He's like, I got more money one night of stand up, which he described it. It was basically he stood on stage for an hour and a room full of drunk people yelled different shows and movies that he'd been in at him. And he would say, Yeah, yeah, I was in Broadway too. Yeah, yeah, I continue playing. All right, good night. <laughs> Walked off stage and he said, I got a bigger check than I have for any movie I've ever done. So it's easy to be the person saying you'd never sell out if nobody wants to buy it. So people, yeah, somebody gets that. Like, actually, there's a great uh, bit 
the comedian I like, uh, Corey Hogan. We talking about like women who are like always like talking to him like about their integrity and all this shit. And then you give him a number, you be like, you know, I ain't never gonna. How much? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everybody's got a price, man. The, the important thing is, you just make sure you know your worth. <laughs> you don't want to yeah, know your worth. You're, you're, you're going to hit a number at some point that's going to sound too good to pass up. You just got to make sure you know what that is and you really thought about it so you don't have any regret later. Look, I pumped your gas and I took your kids to fucking Burger King and got them waffles with cheese. You know you don't live like this for real. I'm your god right now. <laughs> 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 well, I heard another one, like a uh, woman was talking about, like, I'm, also, I want a man to take me someplace fancy, like Applebee's or Fuddruckers. You can't do Fuddruckers anymore, they're closing. <laughs> but at, at the time, yeah, you're good. Yeah, so. I'm just like, <laughs> <laughs> get your kids Whoppers with cheese. Come on, now. You know they only live like that for real. <laughs> All right, all right, back, back to back to Michael J. Fox. All right, so uh, Michael J. Fox was actually a big supporter of Barack Obama when he was running for president. In fact, he actually went to the booth in a, on election day in a shirt that said "Barack to the future." <laughs> there, so, you there you go. There, there you are. You know, uh, and yeah, <laughs> apparently there's a pub in uh, on. Uh, London, Ontario, that's actually called the, the Alex P. Keaton uh, in honor of his character. Apparently, it has since been closed. Uh, he had two honorary degrees. He's got an honorary Doctor of Fine Arts degree from New York University. He also has an honorary Doctor of Laws from the, Brit from the University of British Columbia. He bought both of those in 2008. Uh, he's actually the very first show, the very first guest of The Daily Show when Jon Stewart took over. That was his first guest, Michael J. Fox. And also, he has a uh, uh, two roles in common with uh, a, a voice actor named David Kaufman. Uh, David Kaufman, like I said, we mentioned him last episode. He was in Freakazoid. He was the voice of Dexter. Now, the two roles they have in common: Marty McFly, Mar uh, Michael J. Fox played him live action, and David Kaufman was the voice of the character on the cartoon. And also, Stuart Little. Both of them voice Stuart Little. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, both, yeah, both, both, both characters are voice Stuart Little. Now, some of his uh, movies themselves, let's get into his favorite movies. Uh, he actually has a good quote, pain is temporary, film is forever. It's okay. true. Yeah. Now, first one we'll get into, actually the first three of these movies are ones that are near and dear to us and uh, dear and dear to fans out there. And I'm pretty sure you know which trilogy I'm talking about, the Back to the Future films. So we're going to go ahead with the first one, Back to the Future 1. Now, originally, Robert Smekas and Bob Gale weren't able to get Michael J. Fox because he was actually, he had some scheduling conflicts. And originally, the uh, role of Marty McFly was played by Eric Stoltz. Now, a couple of weeks into it, Eric Stoltz was let go because of the fact that Zemeckis, they felt he was too intense for this character. And then Michael J. Fox, who was then available, accepted, you know, when, he, when, it, when it was asked again, he quickly took over the role of Martin, Martin McFly. Uh, they actually approached him <coughs> during the second season of Family Ties to star in Back to the Future, 
But David Goldberg actually wouldn't allow Fox to time out to make the movie. Because of the delays in the film, they approached him again in the third season. Uh, this time, Goldberg and the way actually able to work out a schedule that allowed Fox to work on both projects simultaneously. So Mondays through Thursdays, Fox will rehearse for the series during the day and then work on the film all night. And then on Fridays, he would they would take uh, family ties. And then as soon as taping was done, he would go back to the set and he would work all weekend. That's how he filmed the first Back to the Future, was doing family ties at the same time. Yeah. He, I think he said. I think he said for average day he slept maybe two hours a night. Well, that's the thing you got to give him too. That um, it's technically speaking, when you sign these deals, when you're going to be doing a television show, something like that, contractually, they can say you're not available. They can restrict you to your your hiatus or even more, depending on the way the contract's written. And so it, it actually got to give it to the producers for being. Um, you know, willing and amenable enough to help him out with his career. And I'm sure they see the, the synergy of it. Hopefully it'll drive more people to watch the show because they'll see him in the movie. But, um, you know, it's really, really nice of them. I mean, you got to be honest about it. It's nice that found a way to work together. To allow it back to back. It didn't happen. No, it didn't. No. Uh, Michael J. Foss himself said that uh, the, the whole thing of Marty being characterized as riding skateboards and chasing girls and wanting to play music and be a rock star. It's basically exactly how Michael J. Fox was in his high school. Sounds about right. Yeah. And apparently, uh, Michael J. Fox is actually only 10 days younger than Leah Thompson, who plays his mom, and actually three years older than his on-screen father, Chris Glover. Which, again, just as a, 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 sm- a small aside, they did a pretty decent job with the makeup in that movie. Yes, they obviously they had to make they had to bring them back to to a youthful state the state they're normally in for the the good chunk in the 50s and everything but even when you get to when they're in 1985 or even when you end up with them in was it 2012 if i remember right 2015 2015 when they when they go in the future i mean again for aging they did a pretty decent job yeah they did a great job good job yeah man now doc's distinctive hunched over uh look it's actually developed because the filmmakers noticed the extreme difference in height between him and Michael J. Fox. Michael J. Fox is 5'4", Christopher Lloyd is 6'1". So to compensate, they basically would have the two blocking. They would have certain shots, whatever, they, they would do them apart at different camera depths. For close-ups, Christopher Lloyd would have to hunch over to be in frame with Michael J. Fox. So that the, the one scene where you see him in the mall and they're running back and forth when the time, when the time machine first goes around, that was on purpose. So, yeah, and you go on back to the, in the, in the constantly the thing of Doc and Marty. The Doc always doing these like crazy exaggerations, going away from Marty is on purpose. Yeah, so it's to help minimize the, the obvious height differential. Yeah, you know like, you like you know, I, I didn't even notice it until I read this. Well, and I'm going to say let's throw this one in there. So, because I don't know how deep you're you plan to go at this point, but this should be a watch along. It is. Look, I'm not. I'm not going too deep in it. All the stuff. All the stuff I'm gonna be saying right now is Michael J. Fox related. Like we when we get into the when we actually do a Bad to the Future watch along, which we are going to do. Okay. All right. Once we actually, yeah, yeah, which, yeah, yeah, which we are, which we are going to do, we're going to get into the whole deep. We're going to get into the meat and potatoes of that one. Okay, but for right now, this is all just Michael J. Fox and your facts. Cool. All right. Now, uh, apparently. Uh, <laughs> Uh, there's a common myth that apparently that Michael J. Fox actually had to learn how to ride a skateboard for this movie. 
But actually, he actually been riding through high school, so he already knew pretty well how to ride a uh, ride a uh, skateboard. He knew what he was doing. Yeah, and apparently, even though we talk about Michael J. Fox's height, uh, apparently when he would get into the DeLorean, all the props and shit that they would do in terms of like all the different time travel stuff would actually shrink Michael in there, and he actually would end up you uh, wrapping his knuckles or hitting his form every time he got in the damn car. Well, yeah, I mean, they, if you look at it again, I mean, first of all, there's not a ton of room in the door anyway, but they filled that space with so much eye candy from the, uh, the scene shop, man. They're, I'm surprised. I'm surprised they ever got Christopher Lloyd in out of that thing. Yeah, the time circuits and the flux capacitor and all that other crazy shit in there. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, apparently for the uh, parking scene with him and his mom, they actually played a joke on Michael J. Fox and his expense. And actually, it's in the bloopers of Michael, of the Back to the Future. I've actually seen it online. Where they were doing the whole thing where they're like smoking cigarettes and like drinking beer and drinking liquor in the car. So what happened was, uh, is that the liquor bottle is actually supposed to be filled with liquor, water. They actually filled it with real liquor. So as soon as he went to taste it, spit that shit out and it's, it, they got it on camera. That was so, great. You did? Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Also, uh, in terms of the premiere, Michael J. Fox said he just happened to be sitting next to Princess Diana at the world premiere of uh, Back to the Future. So, cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, apparently, at a, a cast convention, uh, Michael J. Fox said people still call him McFly constantly. Just McFly! Yeah. And apparently, he said the craziest instance was he was actually in a remote jungle in uh, the South, Asian, the South uh, Asian country of Bhutan, Bhutan, between China and India in the fucking Eastern Himalayas, a group of Buddhist monks passed by him. One of them said, Marty McFly! <laughs> <laughs> so that shows you how far region fucking Back to the Future is. Buddhist monks in Bhutan are calling him McFly! Dude, one one last thing that's not entirely McFly related on it. That movie literally made Robert Zemeckis' career. Yes, it did. He was he was hanging on by his fingernails, and thank God they got it made. And thank God Spielberg came along and put it on as a presented by, so they could use his name to get it out to an audience. Because it's, I mean, honestly, as far as 1980s uh, films go, pop culture. Oh my God! There's no, there's, there's very few movies that are bigger than that. Well, again, you know, this is one of those things you and I talk about all the time, and, and it's a good one we can get into a little more and keeping it with with uh, Michael J. Fox. <coughs> massive remake thing going on right now in Hollywood. There's a the, the only stuff that's even remotely, I'd say, original for the most part, generally tends to fall back into a, a, a Marvel cinematic <coughs> or DC cinematic universe. So they're working off that old thing. You don't have. It's been a while since you had totally original, high-concept stuff like this, it came out and just slayed, and everybody was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. This is some new, where, where it creates, I mean, literally, it created its own ecosystem. Yeah, it did. Yeah, now, it's Back to the Future days. They actually, remember, like, in 2015, they actually had a Back to the Future day because it's supposed to be the date, uh, whatever they had in the movie. Whatever it was in 2015, yeah. In 2015, yeah. Well, and uh, You remember they had the hoverboard? Yeah, and then they actually did make the hoverboard. I'm like, this ain't the fucking hoverboard. No, it worked. It worked on the hoverboard uh, course that they made in downtown. It was basically just like, it was basically just a magnetic board that was hovering on a magnetic course. 
No, but, but then after, but then after that, they released those stupid ass fucking two wheel things, and they called hoverboards. This ain't no fucking hoverboard. No, it's just a great way to to screw up your ankles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically just like a, a segue without the fucking stick. Yeah, exactly. Bullshit. Agreed. <laughs> I, 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 do, I, I, I fucking refuse to call that shit a hoverboard. So, I, I'll get, get off of that. Just the last two facts I have for the first movie. Uh, in 2007, it was actually put into the Library of Congress for being uh, historically, uh, culturally, and aesthetically significant. Yeah. And it was the top grossing movie of 1985. Yeah. Yeah. Now, getting back to the future two, the sequel. Yeah. Also, uh, also uh, according to Michael J. Fox himself, he actually didn't know there was going to be a sequel until he watched the VHS version and saw the two be continued. He's like, and he called him like, we doing another one? <laughs> that's what that's how he found out that's a great way to find out <laughs> exactly like, so it, basically this this and back to the future three part three were filmed at the same time uh because uh they claim in the four years since the original and the remake and the two sequels or whatever michael said he had forgotten how to ride a skateboard and uh, apparently his uh motor skills uh were not that easily lost he actually stated that it was an early symptom of the car disease yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and again, that that would make sense too because they they're getting better, from what I understand, with diagnosing that sort of a thing. But they normally didn't even pick up on it till the tremors started. I've, I've unfortunately I've had had several um, family friends that that have had to fight with that over the years. So it's kind of it's one of those things. Like after the fact, you can look back at it and be like, well, I mean, obviously there's one of those things there. So yeah. Now at the cafe eighties. Mike, Marty orders a Pepsi, and at one point, Michael J. Fox was actually a pitch man for Pepsi during the 80s. Uh, I remember this one commercial, he's like in a library or some shit like that, and he's like the like, race to get a Pepsi, which is like doing Michael J. Fox shit. Like, it, was, it was pretty funny. Uh, and then the, the actual uh, the actual cafe itself, if you look at the TV screens or the stuff they're watching in terms of 80s TV shows, one of them is Family Ties, starring Michael J. Fox. The other Taxi, starring Christopher Lloyd. So you see him actually in the background. I was like, oh, that's funny. That's good. <laughs> and of course, you know, right before, right after they see, uh, you know, the trailer for Jaws 19. <laughs> that horrible CGI shark. Shark still looks fake. Still looks fake, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, my, uh, Back to the Future 2 was actually released on uh, November 22nd, 1989. It initially got mixed reviews. Uh, but it ended up grossing over $332 million worldwide, making it the third highest-grossing movie of 89 behind Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade and, of course, Batman. Yep. Uh, so apparently the reputation of the, the reception of the movie has actually improved over time, uh, particularly, of course, in recent years. You know, what a lot of people are saying that there's a lot of allegations with the whole uh, Biff Tannen thing to Donald Trump and, you know, the whole get down that 2015 is coming past and what happened to the hoverboards and all this other shit, you know. Yeah, a lot of people really come to embrace the second one. And actually, a lot of people have noted it as uh, one of Robert Zemeckis' best films and one of the best sequels ever made. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the, the, biggest, the biggest criticism that, but it's actually, I think, I think in retrospect, if you think about it, is it's a, um, it's really a strength. So there's that whole opening sequence when, He's running from what was what was Biff's kid's name in the in the future? 
Griff or some shit like that. Or whatever it was, that and that whole thing where he's he's chasing him around and it's literally it's literally almost identical in a lot of ways. This, to the first movie. That you know, people were hammering because like, oh, you literally just made the same thing twice. And it's like, no, not not really. What what was brilliant about that from a blocking standpoint and everything is it's kind of pointing out, and I think again, this might just because I'm such a history geek and all the rest of it, there mm-hmm. are patterns that you can see repeated over history because even though you know human beings are evolving and stuff's moving and you're generally a more positive direction. There's something about the fact that we constantly end up dealing with the same problems over and over again. And it's almost like the message of the film in general gets to a point where it's going, well, if we just be better at identifying some of those patterns and avoiding certain things we're doing, I mean, that's the whole thing about when Marty finally learns to stop being um, so easily manipulated emotionally that massive shift happens. It's like he's finally breaking the cycle. I think personally, as a setup, as a way because I mean, again, you get from a marketing standpoint, the rest of it, it worked before we act just like this and maybe it'll work again. But you also have that filmmaker's message as to what I feel like Zemeckis was trying to say with that, that still makes it a great grab. And again, you know, setting aside some of the weird stuff that you had like that it doesn't exactly look like. There was a lot of really good original stuff that they did. And it was still enough of a departure in the same world that it, I mean, you could argue in some ways it's, it's kind of the um, um, Empire Strikes Back of the Back to the Future series. Yeah, it is, because it actually gets really dark. Yeah, especially, when you go, especially when they go to the alternate uh, 85. Yeah. Which I do have to say, the funny thing for me about that is that for whatever reason in the 1980s, Whenever you see a dystopian future or a dystopian present, it's always the same. It's always, there's trash in the streets everywhere. There's always a bunch of fires and trash cans and a bunch of roving gangs of like weirdos doing weird stuff and homeless guys that are standing by the fire. It's, it's kind of hilarious because I mean, literally, whether we go or Robocop or we go this, it's always the same. It's kind of funny how everybody just kind of embraces that. like, oh yeah, this is the dystopian. Trash cans on fire. Uh, lots of tires in random places, gated up houses, all that shit. Yeah, trash blowing through the streets. <laughs> trash blowing through the streets. As much trash as uh, what's that shit? Uh, Blade. Uh, Blade. Yeah, with the fucking papers in the streets. <laughs> trash in the streets of LA. Dude, that shit was everywhere. I'm laughing. I'm laughing because I'm thinking about who was watching that movie. It was just kept saying, "What the fuck is all this paper everywhere? It's just fucking." Every time, like, there's an alley scene, there's paper everywhere. You know what I'm saying? There's two things you can see a lot in, in especially films in the 80s and 90s. And it's, it's like, I don't know if it's because there was, like, a feeling that it was a cheap way to fill the frame or make the frame more interesting. But you'll see a ton of trash in the streets when you're, when you're in exteriors. And you'll see uh, in a lot of interiors, sometimes they overdo the atmosphere. They'll come and hit it with the fog machine to try to make it look a little more, I don't know, mystical or try to add some depth or something to it it, it always especially now i feel like doesn't age very well no now uh the two last facts i have about back to the future two uh in 2011 the parkinson's research uh, foundation actually announced that nike is going to be making uh 1500 pairs of the futuristic nike mag shoes that michael j fox wore in uh back to the future two and they sold them off to charity on ebay and also, in October of 2015, fans actually gathered in the parking lot of the Puente Hills Mall in the City Industry, which is where the fictional 
Twin Pines Mall was in the movie, and they were actually sitting there hoping that a fucking real time machine was gonna show. <laughs> All right. <laughs> hey, and apparently uh, they uh, they celebrated it too, but they uh, somebody put up a giant screen and they watched Back to the Future. And that's the part about it, so. Yeah. So, yeah, it was like a real time machine showing up. Sometimes get too lost in the story. <laughs> For real. Actually, you see, there's some, I think there's a documentary on Netflix where they're talking about, like, Back in Time, I think this is the name of it, where they actually do, they did a recreation of the Hill Valley. They did a, uh, this is, they found a little town in California, I guess, somewhere. They actually did the budget and they actually recreated the fucking downtown Hill Valley in this one little place. You mean the back lot of Universal? <laughs> No, not do that. No, no. Uh, they recreated. They recreated a town from the back lot of Universal in some other little town in California. That's what I was gonna say. Because if if uh, if you're fortunate enough to make it out to do the tour, the tour is pretty cool. You will get to see downtown Hill Valley. I have to. I've done the tour. It's fucking dope. Yeah. I actually was fortunate. I've got to. I got to shoot stuff over there a long time ago. I haven't got to shoot there yet, but I got to shoot by the fucking Monarch Theater. Talking huh. about that. It uh, it, you at uh, Warner Brothers. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. I got yeah. It's it by the Monarch Theater and by the Daily Planet from uh, Lois and Clark. That's yeah. why I filmed that. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right. Let's go ahead and get to Back to the Future Three. This third movie we're talking about now. Now the 1885 setting was actually partially due to a suggestion from Michael J. Fox himself. He actually had commented to them that you know he always he always wanted to be in the western. And they're like, you know what? This is actually not a bad idea. Yeah. So uh, I said, between because of the fact that these two movies were filmed together, part two and part three, two years were spent building the sets and completing the scripts. Now, they were filmed back-to-back over 11 months. And in order to take advantage of uh, Michael J. Fox's extended break from Family Ties, uh, which was actually coming to the end at this point, uh, part three uh, was actually, uh, when, when part three was being filmed, Part two was being edited. So, yeah, they, they took full advantage of that shit. And actually, uh, Clint Eastwood was actually asked permission to use, for, the, for them to use his name in the, in the movie. Never he seen. actually cons- he, he was consented, and apparently he was tickled by it. Well, I thought it was great. Because, I mean, and, and it's one of those funny things, too. Like, it, it, it's, you, if you're going to, like we talked about before, if you're going mm-hmm. to do something that the more ridiculous, the more high concept it is, the more out of the norm it is, the more real your characters have to be. And any kid who's a high school kid in 1985 would have seen every spaghetti Western and Clint Eastwood was the cowboy. You roll it back 10, 15 years, then it's John Wayne, right? Or maybe, maybe Gary Cooper or something. Right? But it's like, yeah. the guy. So it's brilliant, brilliant as far as from the screenwriting standpoint. It's fantastic. And since was a little bit of Get him to sign, um, and again, it makes that scene for geeks like us. Yeah, and the whole fun part about that whole get that is when you watch the movie, how he's trying to say it so convincingly, like he's supposed to be intimidated by the name uh, Eastwood, Clint Eastwood. Everybody's like, "What kind of stupid name is that?" <laughs> well, but when he first starts out, he's wearing that ridiculous '50s Western garb with the. Oh, yeah, and, uh, what are you? Yeah. <laughs> But then, like, I love how Doc was like, uh, what idiot dressed you up in that? You did. Uh, but what's great about Christopher Lloyd is that he has this moment he thinks about it, and it's like, it's almost like 
it's almost like whatever divergence happened in time, his brain finally kind of was like, oh, yeah, I did do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, there's actually a little bit of tragedy in terms of uh, the film in between part two and part three. Uh, during that time frame, Michael J. Fox actually lost his father. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, actually delayed filming too, so he can actually be with his family during that time. And actually, Michael J. Fox said uh, it was actually a crazy year because he lost a father, but he gained a son because his son was born. His son, Sam, was born around the same time. Hmm. So, lost a father, but gained a son. Same year. It's crazy. A roller coaster and a half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, uh, Michael J. Fox actually said filming all three movies was like going back to school because he seemed to be learning something new for each movie. Uh, he learned how to you know, play a guitar. He learned how to horse and learn to shoot a gun for these movies. You know? And also, funny enough, the whole scene where he's like in the bar doing the moonwalking shit, uh, the, the sound effects with his feet shuffling, that's actually done by Michael Winslow from Police Academy. Oh, is it? <laughs> yeah. Funny. He did that. <laughs> yeah, that shit. Oh, man. That's, I, I read that. I was like, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. And uh, also, uh, the whole Frisbee thing. With the, yeah. the pie plate in the frisbee, yeah. Uh, so apparently, uh, in in eighteen seventy one, the frisbee pie company started in Connecticut, and they actually had big pie can pie pans that were thrown on the campus of Yale, and that's how it became. That's how frisbees were invented. So they kind of did an accurate homage to how frisbee was created. I mean, look, and that's one of those things that's great on the writing too. It's why, like, I, I've. I, I understand the impulse to say I want to be pure, right? I've heard some some writers say that I don't want to be I don't want to be burdened with X, Y, or Z. But there's something to be said once you've determined the scope and arc of the characters you want to go to developing your material in the time and place, especially if it's a time and place. The more you can do on that research side to bring in things like that, like the Python, like even the stuff that happens with you know the the cult peacemaker and the different things like that. It really creates enjoyment for the audience because whether you're, you're a geek like, like us and you read all that stuff and you know about that kind of stuff or you're just a normal person, it's, it'll ring true. Yeah. And then the whole thing with the gun thing, like he's shooting, it looks like the fucking 85 game. And son, where did you learn how to shoot like that? 7 Eleven. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, also, a great fact that a lot a lot of people didn't really realize, but I did. Um, the very first scene of this movie, the whole thing with Marty going back to the future, is the only scene that appears in each of the movies. The whole thing, Marty going back uh, to 1985 from 1955 with the lightning bolt and the clock tower and other shit, that appears in all three movies. Which it's is fun because it cuts down on the uh, the amount of footage they got to shoot. <laughs> Exactly. So, like, freaking, like, you got the, the one scene in the original movie, of course, that takes Marty back. Then it's the last scene of part two and the first scene of part three. Yeah, good stuff, man. All right, let's, let's go and get to another movie that I think we should do a watch now. Team War. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> now, we actually mentioned this before in our Commando episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, the writer of Commando is also the writer of Teen Wolf, Jeff Lowe. Uh, he was uh, Jeff Lowe was hired to write it because the studio, after this very surprising 
success of Valley Girl wanted to do a comedy that would cost almost nothing. Apparently, the production cost always all at, at the most a million dollars. It took very little time to film. So he came well, up with this. A handful of locations. They basically just shot on the back lot and in a gym. Yeah, in like a little neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, there was, well, and that's the thing. I mean, I, I, <coughs> you remember, was that a Warner's production? I think it was an independent one. I think it's like Atlantic releasing corporation. The only reason I'm throwing that out there is because I think, and I got to watch it again, but I feel like some of the back lot looks similar to Warner's back lot. So if that's the case, then you don't even have to, like I said, you can shoot the whole thing on, on the set, on the studio, back lot, exteriors, interiors you do on a stage, and then you're done. I was actually going to say the, the actual neighborhood that they used is the same. Same neighborhood they used in the first Back to the Future. They were filming at that same neighborhood around the same time. So yeah. that's why it looks so familiar to you. That's a practical. Yeah, okay. Yes. So, all right. So the, the, film, the project itself came together when Michael J. Fox accepted the lead role because, uh, it, because his uh, fantasized uh, co-star, Meredith Baxter Bernie, had became pregnant. So that uh, necessitated a delay in the show's filming. They gave Fox enough time to do this movie and then come back to the show. Now, uh, the actual director, uh, Rod Daniels, said, I didn't say 10 words to Michael J. Fox about his character or what we were doing. We are just all, always making the same movie. That's great. That is great. And that's the director talking, so I'm like, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, I've <coughs> either the most useful or most useless person that can be the director. And mm-hmm. I'll say, to a certain extent, to include your performers in it, if they understand, if you've done your job as a director, and, and if the writer's done their job, everybody mm-hmm. on the vision, it can be, it can almost be too easy. Yeah. Now, uh, while this is filming, Michael J. Fox has actually said in several interviews, he actually hates this movie. Uh, and like he said he delight, disliked it so much that he, of course, refused to return for the sequel, t Two, whatever. Uh, in an interview at the time, uh, Michael, like I said, Back to the Future was actually filming at the same place at the same time. Like he's like, he actually lamented that shit in the interview. He's like, Steven Spielberg's down the street making great movies, and I'm playing the work. I mean, look, out of everything in his body of work, this is probably the most campy thing he did. Mm-hmm. But the cult following of Teen Wolf is strong. Because that's the thing, right? Like, when it comes to campy, that's that's probably one of those genres I think we can probably say is is going to be binary. It's either going to be really good and it's going to get a good following. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be total shit. And he fortunately came down on the side of it was good. I mean, I get, you know, and you run into this a lot. I think with a lot of actors, the longer they go and everything, you start to hit that point where they, they, feel, they feel ridiculous or they feel like there's some sort of a, a question. Mm-hmm. Right. I hate to put it this way, but some of the more basic kind of Disney types of things, uh, the Hallmark types of things, it can be very, um, very disheartening, I think, because I'm, I'm really serious about comedy. Like, I've, I've heard people, in fact, I think it was Macaulay Culkin was somebody that got originally to be on The Big Bang Theory, and the whole concept and everything was just anathema to any kind of serious work, and for him at this point, he was just like, yeah, I, I heard him talking about it on, on Joe Rogan, and he was just saying how it was like, one of the I would I'd want to kill myself if I did that show. But again, that's one of those personal things for the actor where the actor's going, 
a booth or whatever it is because there's a personal taste thing that almost comes into it or they start to feel like it's belittling their talent. And so oh, I, I, I oh. Michael on that one that he this is just like with Big Bang Theory, it's amazingly commercially successful. I about to say, uh, Mac, you should have took that shit because fucking what Jim Parsons had like what five Emmys, Golden Globes from this shit. Good God. Everybody involved with that show has done phenomenally well. Financially, Mac over the yeah, Mac over the took that deal. I'm sorry, bro. And be clear, that was Macaulay Culkin's uh, feeling on it. And I, I'll be honest, I was resistant to the show. I think mm-hmm. I've, I've told the story before, but the only reason I watched it is back when I was doing my couch couch surfing for a couple of years, trying to figure out how to get, you know some sort of something in the industry so i wasn't just living out of my car one of my buddies was letting me stay on a couch i wore i'm staying on somebody else's couches i don't have an opinion i'll watch whatever you want to watch because thank god you gave me a group of them right it was and i kind of gave him a little bit of shit about it at first because i was really resistant to the concept it seemed too campy and a little ridiculous to me I love that shit. I've got I got a couple seasons on DVD. It's hilarious. Yeah, me too. Uh, yeah, actually, the show the the episode that made me a fan was the Indiana Jones episode. Yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> like, that's what made me a fan. I was like, what the fuck? And it's like, hold up, because it made me think about it. Like, hold up, wait a minute. Yeah, if you if you if you wasn't even in the witness show, now what about? I was like, what about if he did this shit? The whole thing was like uh, Indiana Jones has nothing to do with a plot of movie, really. Like, like, or like uh, that all all the events of the movie would happen if Indiana Jones had never been there. That's what it was. No, oh, you're you're cutting out. You might want to disconnect, reconnect your mic for a second. But yeah, you're you're right. I mean, but the the flip side is okay. So his goal is he was supposed to get the covenant for the for the museum, and instead it ended up. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna do your thing real quick. All right, sorry, folks. He's gonna have. Mike, real quick. I'll, I'll, I'll keep it. Yeah, he's, he's breaking up, so he's going to reconnect his mic. Uh, but if you never saw the episode, um, Sheldon's uh, girlfriend is basically giving him a hard time because they're talking about how much they loved Indiana Jones. And she says, well, you know, it's, it was fine, but there's a glaring plot problem in that um, if Indiana Jones hadn't even been in the movie, um, it wouldn't have made a difference. Everything would end up exactly the way it was before. And the one thing I'll give her that she's totally wrong on is that um, if he hadn't been in the the the, um, the movie, rather than the arc ending up, uh, well, the the part that would have changed, right? Because because at the end, yes, the, the Nazis still would have opened it; they all still would have died. But the arc would have just been left sitting on this island in the middle of nowhere. And then who who knows who would have found it next? The big difference was it got found, and then it was given to the proper authorities, you know, so to speak, it was given to the U.S. government and put into storage somewhere in some giant warehouse, which. Uh, looks like some of these warehouses we got out here in California, which is probably what they did. They just went to one of these movie warehouses and set it up in there. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it was a, it's a hilarious back and forth. It's definitely worth watching as far as the show. There's a lot of really good geek humor. So if you're into our podcast at all, if you're a listener, uh, I'm guessing you've probably seen it. I mean, it's been around for what, like 12 seasons, 12 seasons, I think at this point, 10 seasons, something like that. Definitely sit down and watch it because uh, if you haven't, because it's hilarious. There's a lot of obviously scientific stuff because all these guys are scientists, MIT uh, engineers from, you know, with MIT backgrounds or Caltech and that kind of a thing, um, which creates endless opportunity for lots of social awkwardness, um, lots of kind of ridiculous um, situational comedy sorts of stuff. And then, of course, the, the campy side, which everybody usually gives a little bit more of a hard time about. 
is the fact that there's, um, you know, this hot blonde girl that lives across the hall from these two giant geeks. And one of them, the guy Leonard, uh, is constantly trying to see if he can, you know, figure out how to, to hook up with her. But he's got all his interpersonal things that he doesn't think he's good enough. He's not cool. He's got asthma. He's the quintessential nerd, um, so to speak. And uh, at any rate, it's a fantastic show and it's definitely worth, worth a watch if you haven't seen it. And hold on a second. Let's see. We're going to get JD back on right now. All right, we're back. Uh, thanks for hanging with us. Sorry, we had a little technical difficulty there. But uh, let's jump back into We're talking uh, Teen Wolf 2 and Michael J. Fox. And I wanted to be involved a little too campy for this taste. That's great. Before, before we do that, I just want to say to the fans of that, please contribute to ushooker.com and to the Belsiverse pages so we can help prevent such technical difficulties from happening again. Just- so, you know, you're going to be with us from the beginning. You, you hang <laughs> with us long enough. At some point, it's going to be... Look, I'm not crazy enough to say it's going to be on the same level, but as far as the production value, we could get to a similar production value you get from the Joe Rogan podcast, the Joe Rogan experience. So <laughs> you give us enough, you keep supporting us, you run in there with us long enough, we're going to have a nice little studio, it'll be a video podcast, we'll make sure we've got all the different you know, uh, cuts for you guys, so, the multicam thing, it'll be great. So just hang in so, there. Yeah, so help, help uh, us help you to yeah. help us help you. To enjoy it more and a big yeah. part of that you know what you broke that's fine we've we, we both been broke obviously we're still broke because mm-hmm. the more your friends we get listening we get to a spot we get some more of these uh sponsors coming in they'll give us some money we'll go get the stuff mm-hmm. it all works out all right now back to what Angel was talking about team wolf 2 now like i said uh, it is sponsor sequel uh in 1987 team wolf 2 starring jason bateman uh, but of course, Michael J. Fox did not want to do it at that point. So what they did is they changed the story up, but only so slightly. They they changed the background from high school to college. It's the same town, and they used a lot of the same characters from um, the original movie Team Wolf, like the coach, uh, uh, the Michael J. Fox character dad, um, his best friend Styles, and his other big uh, fat guy best friend Chubby. They all came back. Uh, now, in terms of the actual original movie itself, now the werewolf makeup in both movies took about four hours to apply on both on both films. And Michael J. Fox and Jason Bateman have both stated that they couldn't actually eat when they were in makeup. They only had to have a uh, soup and milkshakes because uh, of the fact that prosthetic teeth and all the other stuff they had had going on with them. Now, uh, for the original movie, if the uh, some of the teen actors look too old to be uh, teenagers. It's because they were. Uh, Michael J. Fox was 23. Uh, the dude that played Styles was 27. The dude that played Chubby was 26. And the bad guy, Mick, was 27. He was actually the oldest person in the cast. Uh, also, for the dance sequence, so they do the uh, thriller-ish dance sequence at the uh, big dance thing or whatever, uh, Michael J. Fox had to have a dance double. He was apparently a terrible dancer. Uh, also, uh, as a result of how famous he got from Family Ties, Michael J. Fox's fame rose steadily as he was filming this movie to the point to, towards the end of it, he actually needed security. Uh, you know, people just were, were mobbing him like crazy. So, you know, it's, it's like, a, you know, he got very popular. Uh, the jersey he wore in the movie, the Beavers jersey, uh, was actually sold on auction at the uh, Dana Collection in Beverly Hills. For thirty thousand, well, actually, thirty thousand uh, dollars. Also, uh, they actually purposely delayed uh, the release of the movie because it was originally supposed to be released in spring of nineteen eighty-five. 
because of the fact they heard the, the whole uh, word of mouth about Back to the Future and that it's going to be this huge blockbuster. So they basically, they basically held off on the movie, let Back to the Future come out, let it become a huge hit, and then pretty much piggyback off of Back to the Future. So uh, it's very smart, actually, because of the fact um, uh, they actually – the movie itself was actually a very surprising commercial success. It made $80 million on a $1 million budget. Yeah. So it was a huge hit, uh, obviously. Um, what Michael Eisner and uh, Katzenberg really kind of pioneered when they were over at Paramount, that's that high concept. So if you have a high concept, you can get away with a lot lower budget to actually get the thing done and still get, you know, asses in the seats, as they say. Yeah. And I actually looked it up uh, while, while we were doing this technical difficulties thing. The distributor of Teen Wolf was Paramount, and the production company was Atlantic Releasing Corporation. Was not independent. So, yeah, they piggybacked off of Universal. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that would have been one of the last ones, Katzenberg and, uh, um, Katzenberg and, and uh, Eisner uh, greenlit before they jumped over to Disney. Probably, yeah. yeah. It'd be about right on the time, if I'm not mistaken. It was, it was like, I'm trying to remember, it was somewhere between 84 and 86 they moved to Disney. Okay. Uh, now, the movie itself was released in August of 85. Uh, it got mixed reviews, but like I said, it was a huge commercial success. Due to its success, it actually spawned a cartoon on CBS in 1986, which I do remember watching, because they used the stock footage of the transformation sequence and shit. And they actually had this weird intro where they had a live action team that was pretty weird. Um, and again, we talked about the sequel in 87, Team Wolf 2. And of course, the more recent thing, the Teen Wolf TV show on MTV, which had nothing to do with the original movie, but it maintained, I think, the name of the town and certain characters like Scott and Styles and people like that. That's basically it. The rest of it was basically just turned into a supernatural drama, teen drama. So that's Teen Wolf. Now, the last movie we're going to talk about, and then we're going to go ahead and wrap this up The Secret of My Success. Yep. Which is actually, personally speaking, is my favorite Michael J. Fox movie. I love Teen Wolf. I love the Back to the Future movies. This one is my fucking favorite. I really do. Like, uh, it, it just came out of nowhere. I was like, I think I was like looking at um, like an encore one day, the network, the, the, the cable channel encore, and it happened to come on. I was like, what is this? This shit was dope. I mean, like, it had the '80s music and the boom, boom, that song is in this movie. <laughs> yeah, boom, boom. This shit. <laughs> Which was like uh, so, a staple for, for every every 80s film. Yeah, and it's been parodied in several TV shows and movies since then. Uh, if you want to do something 80s or 80s related, yeah, put this shit in there. <laughs> All right, so the film itself was actually inspired by the early Hollywood experiences of Steven Spielberg, who apparently snuck into Universal Studios at a young age and use the MP office as his own production office. Yep. And yeah, so okay. Spielberg himself started as a started as a driver. He was driving truck for movies. And actually, uh, you know, for all for all you you kids out there, just a quick little Spielberg kind of uh, note. He tried multiple times to get into USC because you know people that are into it on the filmmaking side they know USC is one of the one of the top film schools in the country. I always want to try to go there, and he got turned down multiple times and ended up actually going to Long Beach State. And uh, he's a graduate of yeah. Long Beach. Um, 
probably their most successful, without argument, I think would be their most successful alumnus. Alum, I don't know. Anyway. Well, I think, I think Steve Martin went there too. Yeah, but can you argue which one of the two is more successful? Spielberg's made a hell of a lot more money. I mean, I don't have a problem with, with, with Steve Martin. We're going to do a deep dive on him one of these days because, I mean, as a comedic genius, that's a hard argument. Yeah. But as far as a commercial success, Spielberg is. Yeah, 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 Spielberg. And so, I mean, it, a lot of it goes to, yeah, like you said, that, that kind of idea of just it, it, the, the crux of the movie, if you don't know it, probably the easiest way to sum it up is it's fake it till you make it. That's, that's kind of the yeah. Describe it, and um, we'll get into some of the stuff that I find hilarious about it now, as far as what makes what makes him a success in the film. Um, exactly. But yeah, I'll let you jump back in. Yeah. yeah. So back to some other facts. Now, the original working script of this had a young man working for his uncle and falling in love with his uncle's prostitute. Uh, Frank Price actually called in Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr. to rewrite the script in eight weeks. Uh, they changed the Christy Wells character from a prostitute to just a mistress. And they added the complication of Aunt Vera in the movie, if you ever get a chance to see it, check it out, it's a pretty great movie. Yeah. Uh, one thing I actually found this out, and I, and I rewatched it myself, and I was like, oh yeah, this, this, I can see this. A lot of people actually liken the movie to another movie called How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. Yeah. But it came out in 1967. And a lot of people, I, just, I see a lot of similarities in the two movies. I, I, I didn't see it at first, but then I watched that movie. I was like, oh, yeah. But uh, still, it has that 80s. Uh, this has that 80s aesthetic to it. Now, uh, Michael J. Fox actually filmed this movie and the movie Light of Day at the same time during the um, fourth and fifth season hiatus of Family Ties. So it's not going to out. Uh, the the uh, movie. Uh, you know, in the movie, Brantley, the character is uh, supposed to be a non-smoker. If you look at his shoes, you actually see dozens of earned marks. There's one part where actually Michael J. Fox puts his feet up on a desk, and you see the burn marks all over his shoes. And apparently, Michael J. Fox at the time was a heavy smoker, and there's basically only extinguishing cigarettes with shoes. So. Um, I'm, I'm worried. I, I think it's uh, I think it's starting to do that robot voice thing again. Try, try again. Maybe it was just a second. Maybe it's the way the wire was. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing the robot voice too. Yeah, we're doing the robot again. All right, hold on just a second, folks. Let us uh, let's try to see what we can do here. Yeah. All right, folks. Real quick, uh, next fact about this movie: um, two of the really popular '80s movie uh, '80s movie songs are actually in this movie. Uh, "Walking on Sunshine" by Katrina and the Waves. That shit is in this movie. And uh, the, the, that's actually, uh, it's titled Oh Yeah by Yellow. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, you can say it in the song. Oh yeah. That shit. Uh, now, Michael J. Fox and Helen Slater, who was the love interest in this movie, their kissing scenes required a lot of height adjustments because of the fact that just like pretty much everybody else, Helen Slater is much taller than Michael J. Fox. Uh, actually, this film of this, the film of this movie actually concluded in August of uh, 1986. Michael J. Fox started his the fifth season of uh, Family Ties the very next day. Hmm. Uh, the movie, yeah, the movie actually debuted on April 10, 1987. It debuted number one at the box office, taking in 7.8 million dollars in this opening week. What a fucking smash and grab! 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, it stayed at number one for five weeks and actually finished out as one of the top ten movies of the year within two months. Uh, it grossed uh, over $66 million in the U.S., uh, making it the seventh highest grossing movie of 1987 and outgrossed. You got to listen to these classes that it outgrossed. Robocop, Predator, yeah. The First Lethal Weapon, and Dirty Dancing. It outgrossed all those movies. And if I believe, yeah, if I believe the highest grossing movie that year, I believe it was a uh, Two Men and a Baby. I can look that up. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, uh, but yeah, did extremely well uh, again. Did extremely well on, on uh, home video. Now let's go ahead and get to some uh, some awards and the legacy of Mr. Michael J. Fox, and then we're gonna go ahead and wrap this thing up. And before now, you, Mr. Michael, before go ahead, go ahead, quick, go I was just gonna say, if you haven't seen it, you should watch that film. It's fantastic. Uh, the, the only part of it that I'd say doesn't hold up as well is there's a montage scene where he's preparing a, uh, a big presentation that he's going to do. And so for those of us that do any kind of presentations or have done them in the last 15, 20 years, when you watch him get poster board and glitter and glue and all kinds of shit out to, to make his presentation of all these charts and graphs and stuff, you go, really? That, is that all it took back then? So that yeah. part of it probably doesn't hold up as well, but the rest of it, so. I love what he's saying. He's in the list to his secretary. I need this. I need teaspoons. I need poster board. Lots of pens. And my lunch. Chinese. <laughs> so it's actually, yeah, it's actually the montage. One of the montages is to that song, Walking on Sunshine. Yeah. And then the other, another montage. There's like three or four montages. No, there's like five montages in this movie. Because uh, the, the main one is the Walking on Sunshine one, but then also the old yeah scene is a, pretty yeah. much a montage. It's the whole, him, him and the, he's the driver, and then the lady's in the back, and she's like doing all this seductive shit. You see like uh, shots of her legs and her like, you know, getting scantily clad and shit, and like the door locking and her smoking seductively and shit like that. Pretty much a montage. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like I said, let's go and get to the awards of Mr. Michael J. Fox. He won three Emmys. For his time on uh, Family Ties, 1986, 1987, and 1988, and won the Golden Globe in 1999, all for Outstanding Lead Actor in the Comedy Series. Uh, he also won the Emmy in 2000 for Spin City, won three Golden Globe Awards in 98, 99, and 2000, and two SAG Awards in 99 and 2000, all for Spin City. Uh, he also is mentioned in two Eminem songs. Uh, the cold wind blows and won't back down. Yeah. Uh, there's a theater named after him in his local in his hometown of uh, Burnbury, British Columbia, British Columbia, Canada. He's on uh, Planet Hollywood's Walk of Fame. He is inducted onto Canada's Walk of Fame in 2000. And let's see here. On uh, 2000, in 2002, he got his Hollywood Walk of Fame star. Uh, and uh, let's see what else. He's ranked 23, number 23 of TV's top 25 teen idols of all time. He was honored by the Golden Camera Award for Lifetime Achievement. He's appointed an officer of Canada. Uh, I, I think it's like uh, the equivalent of like a knighthood, you know, pretty much like, yeah, yeah appointed officer of the Order of Canada, uh, recognizing his uh, national service and achievement. He's honored by the Golden Apple uh, by the Casting Society of, of America. And he's inducted into the uh, Actors uh, OFTA Television Hall of Fame by the Online Film and TV Association. Mm -hmm. So those are the, some of the achievements of Mr. Michael J. Fox. Now, uh, personally speaking, I, I, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, 
uh, definitely one of my heroes in terms of acting. If you ever watch his stuff, uh, just as a pure actor, like he's fantastic. One of my favorite episodes on any television show ever is the episode I, uh, Alex, on, um, on Family Ties, where basically it's like Baron, a set, and you see like little interstitials of like cast, like, like he, I think he's like, I think he, a friend of his dies, and he goes this, goes through this like existential drama about what's going on, and like you see the cast members like uh, playing different parts, and he's like, you know, expert, uh, getting getting deep into his emotions about the whole situation. And it's really, it's very wonderful to watch, um, and definitely one of my favorite. And then also this great scene with him and Tom Hanks on uh, Family Ties. Uh, Tom uh, plays his like drunk uncle. Yeah. Uncle Ned, I think yeah. his name was. Yeah, Uncle Ned. And uh, like, it's really great to see these two actors work together. Tom Hanks and Michael J. Fox. And then, of course, all this great stuff. And like, he had, he had some great moments on uh, Spin City, too, man, in terms yeah. of dramatic acting. Um, it was a top notch actor. And then the whole, all the stuff with him and Ellen. I think that was some of his best acting, too, on the uh, Family Ties and the whole scenario with Ellen. And he was, that's his girl, and she, he doesn't want her to go away, but at the same time, he doesn't. Back, it's a beautiful scene, man. and like Tracy Paulin does work really well with him. Turn that and actually, I think they brought him back. It's like a lost girlfriend on Spin City for him too. Like the, like the one that got away from him, they brought they brought her back for that. And uh, like I said, like if you ever get a chance to see Michael J. Fox do his thing, it's really it really is wonderful. And like like you mentioned, his uh sketch spot on Rescue Me. Yeah. He also did a great spot on Scrubs too. Well, and, and that's what I was going to say is kind of great about where he's at now. You know, even though he's having to, because of the physical aspects of Parkinson's and what's that, what that's done to him, you know, he's still managed to to pull some spots here and there. His guest spot where he's basically in, in Rescue Me, he's dating Dennis Leary's, I guess at the moment she's his ex-wife. It's, it's, it's a weird show if you haven't seen it. It's great. It's worth watching. It, they, he gets together and breaks up with his wife multiple times during the show. Uh, but one of the times Michael J. Fox comes in and to try to help mask some of his issues with Parkinson's, they have him as a, uh, a wheelchair, a wheelchair bound guy who's uh, managed to get um, his wife in the show. And um, even, even despite what he's got, he still manages to, to cover for what he's having as far as his issues with the Parkinson's and with the, the tremors and everything and still deliver a fantastic performance. It's funny. It's, one of his darker performances because that character he's playing is kind of a darker black better term. He's kind of an asshole. Um, but he still managed to do great work there. And then again, his off camera stuff, um, you know, and, all, and as it so, so often happens, right, because he has his personal connection to this disease specifically, um, you're going to be hard pressed, I think, to find anyone who's done more for Parkinson's than Michael J. Fox. Um, and he keeps doing it through his foundation, him and his wife, they're, they're constantly working on it. So if you are somebody who's, uh, keen on giving and that kind of thing, you know, that's that's not not a worse place or not a better place to think of to, to actually donate and put some time in because it's it's going to take care of research and try to help combat this horrible thing. So all right, so uh we hope you guys have enjoyed this podcast despite the technical difficulties. <laughs> um, I don't know if it's my computer, I don't know if it's the internet, I don't like I'm trying like I don't even know if it's the audio now because like it still keeps happening despite you know, trying to fix it. It might be just be the computer itself. Uh, I was gonna say like uh maybe I'll put some a hook up that stimulus check and maybe I can fucking afford to get myself a new computer. Hey, they they say round two's coming. <laughs> Actually, funny enough, I actually never got around one. 
What? Mm-mm. Never got my first single shit. Mm-hmm. You gotta make a call on that, man. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if I had to. Like, thank for thank God, like I haven't really gone nowhere, so I'm not really hurting for money. So. Yeah, I, I've but, actually got a, I got a couple of buddies that uh, that work as grips. One of them still hasn't been able to get his unemployment, and we're what three and a half months into this thing, and he's still fighting to get it. Part part of how it got screwed up to start with for him was they uh, they misspelled his name. Somebody in the office. His name's uh, Russ, and so it's got uh, it's got two S's, and they they spelled it Rudd, R-U-D-D. Everything mm-hmm. else is right except for that, and it just created a whole hell hellstorm. So, so stupid. Yeah. But, all right, but yeah, like uh, like I said, we really hope you have enjoyed this podcast. Uh, we're gonna go ahead and uh, get off the air, and we're gonna discuss what we're gonna do next week in terms of subject matter. But until then, this is dropping that culture with JD and AJ. JD, and I'm AJ.